vigorous podcast with the one and only Dr. Dean St. Martz for part two. It's been a year since we last talked. And uh, the last the last podcast we did, we got a lot of good response, a lot of views, probably one of the most viewed podcasts that I had uh, after BioBros. So here we are again. We're going to uh, continue where we left off. How have you been, man? I'm good. I think last time we, we spoke, I was just coming to the end of my last ever off-season before my prep right. last year. And then uh -huh. obviously I went into prep then in, in the May. So I think we had the podcast in April and then three weeks mm -hmm. later entered into whatever it was, 26 weeks prep. Yeah, it was very long. And how many shows did you do? You did like three or four shows? Six. Six. Six, yeah. Two. and then Six shows. Wow. And then four, four in a row, week after week in October. So uh -huh. I, uh, I pretty much, by the end of it, I probably could have kept going. But I was, I was sort of happy. My long-term goal was to win Mr. Ireland. That was what, like when I started bodybuilding, I was, I'm going to win Mr. Ireland, win my right. class at Mr. The Irish Nationals, and then be happy uh, to retire. Good. So you finally did that, and then then after after that, you're like, okay, you know, now it's now it's enough. It's, I mean, six yeah. shows quite a bit. I mean, with with the the I guess the the agreement with my wife was if I win, <laughs> I, I I retire. That was the that was the agreement because right. there was sort of like throughout it, she's like saying, "What's going to happen if you don't win?" And I'm just saying for now, I am winning. Like that was the complete change in mindset last year was I have won as opposed to I'm turning up to win. It was right. every single day I've already won. And it sort of showed me that when you want something and you visualize it and that whole, you bring the universe to you, that really like showed me how powerful your, your mindset has to be in order to create that future. Mm-hmm. So how 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 bad was the post contest blues then afterwards? Because I know you're always very dedicated and regimented, like going into the show, and then you win, and you have your five minutes of like acute, like total bliss. Of course, that you finally <laughs> accomplish your goals, and then what's next? What's yeah, next? That, right. So that, so how did that, that go? That was that was a little bit hard because obviously when you finish. Normally, when you finish a prep, you've always you've almost got your off season plan, and you've got your your sort of off season cycle and your nutrition, everything set up. After the show is pretty much straight to, to like your strict TRT, mm -hmm. and um, really just training for fun again. It was more so like it was um, on Tuesday. I'd do like a high intensity, like almost interval training where I was like incorporating mm -hmm. kickboxing back into things and box jumps and just really just getting back to how I used to train years ago, as opposed to being regimented with chest, back, right, arms. Right, right, right. <laughs> having fun with it, you mean? Yeah, having some fun yeah, in pretty, the gym, yeah. Pretty much, and just having no, I guess when you don't have any plan of where you need to take your physique to, you can be a bit lost because you're going into the gym thinking, you know, you're not chasing a log book or you're not chasing like huge amounts of progressive overload. It's more so I'm, I'm training now for health and longevity and all the benefits from training as opposed to let's get massive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. So, so it's also a bit of a burden off your shoulder, right? Because of course, when you want to win, you want to put in, you know, everything you can to to accomplish that. But sometimes you also realize in the back of your head, like, you know what, maybe, maybe the drugs and the PDs, I mean, we're both very health conscious. So in the back <laughs> yeah. of your head, like, I want to win. And then the, the the angel on your shoulder is like, yeah, but you're ruining your health and your lipids are going to be skewed and, and that kind of stuff. And of course, you do your blood work after the show and you're probably not as happy. 
as you are, uh, you know, winning the show. But yeah, so obviously that from what I've shared on social media, I waited like my 12, 14 weeks post-show to get an accurate reflection of what my, everyone knows what their bloods look like on cycle or they should know what their bloods look like on cycle. And your bloods aren't really going to change a huge amount of variance on cycle versus off. So you should know to expect what your bloods are like on cycle versus off. And so we get to this sort of like 14 week period post-show I'm expecting like all green green lights, green markers, one, two, five tests. I haven't been pushing anything, all health supplements. My mm. diet's been clean. My body fat was probably like still seven, eight percent in January. Yeah, you, still, you stayed quite lean after the show. Yeah, that was good yeah. to see. And then, and then mm. it came to the blood work and like what we've seen, my triglycerides were at 7.8 and my LDL couldn't be detected. And I'm, I'm messaging you and I'm messaging a couple other people going, that can't be right. That like, yeah. I'm literally looking at my trend and the blood work on cycle during prep had triglycerides at 0.9. And I'm thinking something's right. not, not right here with mm. either I've given myself like really bad fatty liver disease with the prep that just has gone uh-huh. undiagnosed and silent, or we've got something seriously else wrong so obviously we we retested the blood work because i work through that that uk company the blood lab right and even mm-hmm. chris chris um who runs it was even like to me this can't be right this has to be an assay issue so we literally do three tests every second day for a week and the same result comes back and we're like okay well it's not an assay issue there's something seriously wrong in your body right. Right, and I told you, I so maybe it's maybe it's time to do a liver ultrasound because this is so high, you know, all your metabolic markers literally look like you had non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is yeah. weird when you're doing a prep because you're in such a caloric restrictive state. And, I mean, your your cycle was quite modest. I know on Instagram yeah. you posted, like, uh, apples and oranges, and, and uh, <laughs> yeah. right, because you didn't want to disclose what the cycle was. But I think you were, what, you were sub 1,000 milligrams? I think 700 milligrams in total. At the end, at the end, it was 1,200. So it was, okay, yeah. it was I think okay. it was three, 300 tests, 600 primo, and 300 mast. And that, that okay. was it. Obviously, at the That's, end, then yeah. it was very small amounts of orals as needed in sort of peak week. Mm. But other than that, you're, you're looking at a very sort of moderate. For, for my body weight, my body weight was 88 kilos. So it's, yeah. it's a relatively quote-unquote moderate cycle so you're like looking at it and going the q the q score that i sent you from my liver enzymes even though they were low was showing that there was a risk of fibrosis and i'm thinking all right well there has to be something <laughs> going on here at the liver <laughs> right and then and then as we go on it's sort of like none of this makes sense because even with the diet post show for me was low in fat like my calories weren't really high so none of the, like the fatty liver sort of symptoms or markers lined up with the blood work yeah so I, I think I, the only way only way it could have been like that if you were s- secretly slurping a lot of high fructose corn yeah, syrup yeah. from coke you know like in the end of the day like oh, i have my one can of coke and a can of coke is actually like a gallon you know yeah. that it made sense but you know based on your body fat levels yeah I, I, I couldn't really piece it together until you told me that you know it was diet related yeah and so like we we start going through it and I, then i thought it was SIBO or i thought it was like a backlash because obviously in december post show last year during prep i had really bad SIBO that i just could not right. treat 
during the prep. So I was just managing it with diet. And then when it came to December, I then ran a course of rifaximin and uh, right. metrodonazole to kill it off. And that was successful. GI function was restored. We all verified that with GI stool testing. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm thinking, maybe is my like gut flora like paying me back for killing off loads of things? <laughs> and that was that was something that we talked about. That was SIBO. Because right. then when I looked in the literature, there was things that elevate triglycerides in response to SIBO. And then that sort of mm-hmm. fed down another rabbit hole of H. pylori because one of the so right, and he, but guess, you checked it that, and there was there was nothing there, right? Yeah, with zero, the H. pylori zero antibodies. And and why we checked mm-hmm. though was one of the symptoms that I was having was a small bit of reflux. And to me, having a bit of reflux as a bodybuilder can either be a real silent symptom or it can be a silent deadly symptom. Um, when I said it to Chris right. about the reflux, <laughs> he he said to me, "No, this this changes the the sort of scenery of what we should be sort of looking at." So H. pylori was one. And then the second one was he said, I'm going to test your ATTA antibodies, so your anti-transglutaminase mm-hmm. antibodies for celiac disease. I was like, celiac? And he's like, yeah, I have a suspicion that you're celiac. And I said to him, okay, well, when I done my genetics, I, we do have that HLA-DOR gene that makes your immune system mm-hmm. more, um, I guess, sensitive is the right way to say it. So it presents antigens right. to your immune system a little more sensitively. And the ATTA came back sky high. It was like in the three thousands. He's like, we, they've actually sent it to another lab to verify that that result is oh, true. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so what ended up happening there was during my off season or whatever retirement, I was eating bits of bread. I was eating homemade pizzas. Like generally I wouldn't mm. really eat a lot of gluten. I'd stick to rice based even more just for digestion and knowing yeah. that gluten-based foods in the past did leave me a little bloated or tired but you'd sort of expect that with like heavy carb meals like heavy pizza and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and so around the time of the first blood work i had been eating quite a bit of bread and quite a bit of homemade pizza so that was when the the triglycerides detected it because any other time before that when i had blood work i was just eating my normal like rice-based diet so it was never being detected right and then you don't see it off also because all of your metabolic markers are just normal because you don't get this weird inflammatory response and then, you know, everything kind of building up and backing up in, in the intestinal tract. Because you, you I've yeah. seen some pictures when you had SIBO where your stomach was a little bit out, right, which you were able to control, you know, with proper nutrition. But of course, you know, like bread and pizza and, and that kind of dull stuff, that's not diet food. So it was yeah, probably yeah. already in the back of your head or going on internally. And then, of course, you know, post-contest, you're like, okay, you know, the, the edge is off. You can relax a little bit, go out with family again, eat a little bit more freely. But, you know, with these kinds of inflammatory conditions, it seems to compound itself. Right? The more you eat, yeah. the worse it gets. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's sort of like, again, like fatty, non-fat, non-alcohol fatty liver disease, it's silent. Like, there was no symptoms. There was, okay, maybe mm-hmm. looking back in hindsight, was it a couple of digestive symptoms? But... There was nothing to suggest that my triglycerides were at a level that I was like impending heart attack territory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had, like, your blood was basically gravy for a bit. And you know, that's scary because you're, you, you yeah. don't have any symptom that that's going on until you have a massive heart attack and it's sort of like scratching your head. <laughs> yeah. So that's why we do so, blood work, guys, right? As frequently and, as we exactly. can just to get you done because you, you caught it and resolved it, what, in just a couple of days, seven days? 
so so we when we realized it was celiac we tested again so obviously the gluten had been removed and it moved from seven down to four and then we went sh- like strict gluten-free for 12 weeks and we retested there mm. at the start of july and it was down to 0.9 again so it yeah. really goes to show mm. you your diet has such an impact to your blood so you even realizing that if you are you know following a strict sort of rice-based diet you might miss a gluten sensitivity if you don't eat it around the time your bloods yeah which is sort of what happened no, for me in the past no and then you know like like i usually do my blood work on the sunday morning of doing a refeed or cheat meal right so you go in like a week after the last refeed and then sometimes you see like wait wait a minute my c-reactive protein is a little bit elevated and 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 you know some other markers or liver enzymes are slightly higher or triglycerides are a little bit off and then you have to think well, the whole week i was eating healthy food Right, but what about this last meal on Sunday, which I had basically eight hours the last uh, blood work, right? Or, or uh, what is it, 132 hours before the blood work? But it can actually last that long. And sometimes, what I what I discussed with clients, sometimes they feel really, really off the day after a refeed or cheat meal, and it's actually because of the foods that they're eating. They're having this acute inflammatory response from this one meal or two meals that they have over the weekend, and then Monday the workout suffers, you know, and, and you think was that the metformin. Was it the pizza, right? Or was it just like the lactose, right, from the cheese? And then you kind of have to piece it together. But, you know, it just pays and it shows that the older you get and after a couple of courses of performance-enhancing drugs, you just got to eat super clean 24-7 because otherwise you just mess up yourself, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that really, you know, like I was saying to you, when we went away on holiday, I, mm-hmm. I did not train. The nearest gym was like, a 30 minute drive and I was just like you know what we're exploring yeah we went over yeah. to Mauritius where my dad's from we were exploring yeah. the island there was just too much on an activity to actually dedicate to training so I I done the unspeakable and literally went right no training for three weeks just enjoy the holiday you're not oh, going to lose any podcast. gains stop the, stop the yeah. podcast <laughs> <laughs> I just took five weeks off to recover some injuries so it's all good <laughs> You know, and and this is probably an important message for people that you're not going to lose massive amounts of muscle tissue by taking time off to go on holiday and vacation. You know, oh. if if the gym if the gym had been a five minute drive or a five minute walk, then yeah, I might have gone for like half an hour, forty minutes in the morning, done a quick workout. But to take that much time away from your sort of family vacation, you sort of have to weigh up. You know, you know what's to be gained from going to the gym versus what's to be gained with spending time with your your young boys and whatever. So. Exactly. I mean, that's and right, and and you're working full time, and the boys are going to school. So this is like the only opportunity you have to spend the whole entire day with the kids. That's not the weekend. Yeah, man, I wouldn't go to the gym if I was in that position. I would just go walk around and have fun, and you know, do whatever the kids want to do. And I'm sure you got leaner in the process, walking around chasing everybody down. That 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 was it. I mean, I went I went away at 91 kilos. I came back at 91 kilos, a little softer. Okay, maintain my weight and that, and that wasn't even uh-huh. tracking any food so this time you know literally just had something for breakfast something maybe in the middle of the day and then wait for dinner and that was as normal sort of routine as i've had in god knows how many years right right yeah you need to go away from home and from the gym before you can actually experience <laughs> yeah. that i'm going to japan for about 11 days in september so the first first two weeks of september i go to japan and i'm sure i'll do exactly the same uh, yeah, just, you just, you know, just taking the culture be, and 
yeah, be a tourist, have some, you know, see some, uh, eat some Kobe beef, and go to Kyoto and Osaka and go to Super Mario World. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and then hopefully by the time I, I don't look like a doughball. <laughs> let's see. <laughs> let's see. Let's see. Let's see. So, so right now you got everything kind of sorted, and you're, you know, back on the normal bodybuilding regime, excluding the bread and the, you know. Back yeah, yeah. Food. Literally, just, just back to. Uh a rice-based diet like I, I was going to say when we were on holiday it was just a minefield like being a celiac in a foreign country and let alone a language barrier so you're trying to explain in French like my French isn't as good as it used to be but you're trying to explain to them that you have this allergy to wheat let alone saying celiac and they're like going an allergy to wheat and they're it just it came to the point <laughs> where I just gave up most nights and I was just like just steak and chips and then right. even then I got to see how sensitive you become when you are celiac because I could tell when say chips were fried in the same oil as like chicken nuggets or sort of battered food yeah. that mm. you, you've seen this cross contamination. And I mean, when, when I learned of being celiac, I said to Morgan, oh, I don't want to be one of these people that were out for food and were like, did that touch a bit of gluten? Oh, I have to be really strict. That I didn't want to turn into one of these anal people of like <laughs> being so you're, paranoid. You're finally, you're finally retired from bodybuilding, but you're still bringing your fucking Tupperware with you because you know you have celiac disease. What do you have there, sir? Chicken, rice, and broccoli, sir. <laughs> oh, that would and that's sort of right? like when it came to most nights, I was just like, to Morgan, this is just roulette. Like, let's just pray that tomorrow morning that my bowel is good. Because I could tell my bowel function would be perfect. Now, all of a sudden, you'd have, like, a loose stool the next morning, and you'd know, okay, well, there was gluten in that meal. Not a lot, but enough to tell your immune system, do a bit of intestinal damage. Mm-hmm. And um, right. then we went, we had a family meal, and we were trying to explain to them, you know, how serious this allergy was and i'm eating the food they prepared burgers and they prepared chicken and i'm, I'm eating the burger i'm thinking okay th- this tastes not homemade this tastes like you know a frozen beef burger that would have flour mm-hmm. and ground onion into it and i'm eating i'm thinking no they, they've said it's homemade so i'm gonna keep eating it and within 20 minutes i had to excuse myself and and run to the bathroom and all that night I had like really bad gas and then the next morning I woke up and I looked I looked nine months pregnant my belly was like out here and um my parents obviously were in Hollywood my parents my parents looked at me and said Jesus this is serious I'm like going you you don't think so (laughs) (laughs) so your wife was pregnant it was less yeah (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, it felt like sandpaper was rubbing on my guts. And then this fatigue mm. came over me where I, I literally slept for 16 hours straight. We uh, we went out to this nature park that, like, Sunday morning. I managed to walk around the nature park with the boys trying to keep, you know, happy. And as soon as we got back to our apartment, straight to bed, I literally slept from, like, 3 o'clock till 8 o'clock the next morning. Wow. And it's just... That's crazy. This this fatigue where your body's just like, you need to go asleep. There's something seriously wrong. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. It's just preventing you from either more of that kind of stuff, you know? So yeah, at least have some time to kind of pass it along. And and how how long did it take you to kind of get over that, that episode? 
Start, say it was Sunday, slept all the way till Monday, and then I fasted, just water fasted all day Monday until mm. about uh, half eight Monday evening when we went for dinner. And then I just had something mm. small at dinner time. But in result of that, it left me like lactose intolerant because then two days later we went and we got ice cream with the boys and my gut was turned inside out. So obviously mm-hmm. with celiac, your your gut is basically eating itself. It's your immune system is attacking the gut. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that sort of the the sort of soft villi structures in your small intestine are where lactase gets secreted and they're like the right. first mm-hmm. the first cells to get damaged or mowed away by your immune system. So the lactose oh, intolerance has sort of only started to resolve itself now, which is what maybe five weeks, six weeks after. Um, That's a long time. So really shows you like with that intestinal damage, what what ends up happening to that immune function and obviously your digestive function with it. Yeah, and it's catching it early on. I mean, you know how many people walk around with this undiagnosed and have no idea and they they don't do an elimination diet or address it and they they have all kinds of serious issues and then they have to do a a carnivore diet (laughs) to fix it, which is basically, you know, the the biggest elimination diet you can do, which you can only eat animal meat-based sources, right, and exclude everything else, including the processed stuff, and that's how they fix themselves. Did you you do some oral BPC-157 to kind of, you know, bring some calmness to your intestinal tract and... That, as yeah. soon as we got back, I introduced that. And then I introduced what I said to you, the lorazotide. So right. I, mm-hmm. I was at, I was at the, the health optimization summit, that biohacking summit in, right. in London. Mm-hmm. And, and a follower, um, apologies, I can't remember. I'm really bad with names. But he, he came to me and said, oh, have you heard about lorazotide? I was like, no. And he said, oh, well, my, my dad's celiac and we've trialed this in him. You know, have a Google of you know, PubMed studies on lorazotides. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you research into it, they, they gave celiac patients either 250 milligrams, 500 milligrams, or one gram over like a six week period, and then measured the levels of zonulin. So obviously looking at how tight the um, intestinal barrier was and looking mm-hmm. for the levels, obviously to decrease to make sure that the junctions were tightening again. And they seen huge results in that like 250 to 500 milligram dose region. So I've been taking that the last two weeks at 250 milligrams twice a day. And I Mm -hmm. have to say, I've noticed quite a lot of um, improvements to the digestive function, but also to the sort of inflammation around my gut. So there's less water Mm -hmm. retention. Mm -hmm. The sort of visualism much more improved. So right now I'm taking... 500 micrograms of BPC-157, the mm. 250 milligrams of lorazotide twice a day, and then I have KPV in, if you've ever read about KPV. No, no, enlighten so K- us, please. K- K- KPV is a, a tripeptide, but it has really strong antimicrobial and antifungal properties, so it's really useful if you potentially have candida overgrowth. Is um, it, it, this sounds like um, what it, PT77. No, there was another peptide who has very similar properties. It could actually be the same thing, but a different abbreviation. Um, I have it in one of my intestinal health videos. It just the abbreviation eludes me. KPV. It's probably the same thing. It's like an, something that you would secrete endogenously, but it goes yeah, systemic, right? But if you take 
Yeah, if you take it orally uh, or injectable version, it actually kind of resets your gut microbiome, but only keeps the gut biome. Yeah, yeah it's probably the same e exactly. Stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it helps obviously with putrid production. And so I've I've right. put that mm. in. Um, very hard to say what great effect it's had just yet, but I mean, considering the amount of damage that's probably been there from years of abuse, any sort of small mm. help is going to help. Um, yeah, and we're, when we're talking about abuse, we're talking about pizza and, and, and bread, not about yeah. oral steroids, right? <laughs> and everybody's like, yeah, I knew he was on yeah. 50 milligrams and a drop per day. That's why it's got his messed up. Right, but that's that's the common story with most bodybuilders. They just take copious amounts of Anadrol their entire off-season, including very famous Mr. Olympias. Um, and then they wreck, they wreck their intestinal health, you know, and they need to go undergo all kinds of treatments to kind of I fix that. I I delved into on our SN education where I like biochemistry of trying to figure out what was the mechanism of orals ruining your appetite and mm -hmm. ruining um obviously intestinal health. And you actually start to see that it's got to do with how your your bile acids interact with like your CCKY and your ghrelin in mm -hmm. in your intestine. So one of the like easiest things you can probably do to offset some of that appetite destruction with orals is optimizing bile flow with Todka right. and then okay, optimizing right. fatty acid transport across your liver. So choline and inositol, the, the right. sort of the, the theory behind the liver stack that I made. Right. But when you, when and you it's good to run year round anyway, because it, of course yeah. it helps with tremendously with liver health. Yes. And uh, did you ever add in the, the ox bile to help with uh, the breakdown? That's, of, what's you in, know? that's what's in liver right. stack. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Good. So, good. so you sort of, you start to see obviously that when you have these appetite issues or orals, it probably stems back to your bile flow potentially being mm. so sluggish and fatty acids not being able to feed directly into the, the geogenome. And then obviously you have right. these, um, appetite regulatory hormones like CCKY and ghrelin and whatever else mm. being inhibited because of that lack of bile flow. So obviously your your intestine is looking for that drip feed of bile down into it and mm. it's not receiving it. It's going to tell your brain, slow everything down. Right, right. And then the fact that your intestinal lighting also has androgen receptors, right? The, the, just the outside of your, of course, so this hypertrophy is now the normal contractile capacity of your, um, you know, intestinal tract is altered, right? You get yeah. more forceful contractions, but also it's more difficult to absorb these nutrients because these little fingers that are in your intestinal tract, right, where the nutrients kind of pass into the uh, central circulation. That I think gets impaired as well. And then you have yeah. aromatized enzymes and 17 hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase enzymes within the intestinal tract. So whatever you take orally gets now converted into we these weird metabolites who haven't really been investigated. So you're, yeah, that's why I think nowadays we either do sublingual or uh, just don't take orals anymore. <laughs> yeah, the, the sublingual is always the, the one where people are sort of like, how does that actually work? And you're trying to explain to them, well, like you've got this really thin buccal membrane underneath your tongue that mm -hmm. molecules will rapidly pass underneath underneath the surface of the tongue through this membrane and straight into your bloodstream. So you're, you're completely bypassing yeah. first, like first pass metabolism. So first off the drug is going straight into your bloodstream off around the body and then some of it is going to get absorbed obviously through digestion and passed by the liver but you're you're sort of bypassing that with the yeah. the sublingual so that that tends to be my favorite way of doing it that you just literally put put 
if, and I, I has to show that your tablet has been made correctly because that's another thing. Mm-hmm. If the coating mm-hmm. agents on the tablet don't allow the tablet to dissolve efficiently under your tongue, right? It's, that's it's, very true. You're pretty yeah. much you're pretty much going to be just um, swallowing powder basically as opposed to absorbing. So it, do, it does exactly, depend on what, exactly. what coating yeah, the, should, the lab is I think is the, the United uh, Standard Pharmacopoeia or United States Pharmacopoeia the instructs that it should dissolve in 20 minutes. So that's usually enough time for, you know, this, this active pharmaceutical ingredient to kind of pass into the saliva ducts and gets absorbed for systemic infl- uh, circulation. And then, you know, usually the best way to uh, explain it, especially for the people who have, you know, um, experience with recreational drugs, it basically works the same as, you know, snorting something. <laughs> right? That's also very easy to absorb, um, you know, active pharmaceutical ingredient. And this is basically the idea behind, you know, the nootropics like Samax and Salank and, and a couple of the other ones. And you yeah. get it internationally, it goes straight into your brainstem. And uh, with sublingual absorption, it goes straight into the, you know, bloodstream. And then it works systemically. Although with Anadrol, you're missing out on this mestanolone metabolite, which, you know, due to its androgenic rating might be actually one of the reasons why Anadrol is so potent. And some of yeah. these non-genomic, non-genomic effects might be, you might be missing out on that. Um, yes. Albeit that I will say that I've done anadrol sublingually and orally, and I, I would say that the pumps and the effects are pretty much the same. Now, what is going on genetically, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, but I, I think bypassing this, you know, the oral absorption is is something we can save ourselves a lot of gut issues down the line. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, and that's sort of where they try to do injectable orals as well, that you're just putting a, yeah. a suspension of the powder into into the muscle. Um, probably a lot more painful than sublingual, to be honest. <laughs> the problem is that the carrier oils that they use, you know, the, the glycol and the etholiate and, and uh, you know, pro, uh, polyethylene glycol or propethylene glycol. You know, it's funny, I, I saw somewhere that people were talking about um, that testosterone can cause test flu, right, through one of the metabolites, eticoniolinone, or one of the, it goes through 5-alpha reductase and then, you know, somewhere down the line, you have one of these last metabolites, which was specifically investigated to see if it can cause fever and post-injection pain and kind of an allergic response. And all of those old studies, they compounded the ethicoly, whatever you pronounce it, etio, et cetera, yeah. all, the, all in, in propylene glycol, which is one of the most toxic injectables you can take. And then 20 years later, they figured out in some scientific literature that this is one of the most toxic stuff you can actually compound stuff in and you should definitely keep it away from kids because they had yeah. severe <laughs> allergic responses and horrible post injection pain and that kind of stuff. So when you go through the scientific literature, you realize that, wait a minute, this not, has nothing to do with the metabolites, it's the carrier oil that they were using for this particular study. And all these studies that they investigated this metabolite in all synthetic carrier oils. So. It's, it's funny how you can kind of, you know, you go through the timeline of how these studies are performed and then you realize with new information uh, found later on, all of the other older studies, they kind of become invalid. Even though yeah, now you go yeah. to, you know, even though now you go to Wikipedia or, or you know, wherever they cite these studies, they still say ethyconolone uh, um, is uh, causing fever. It's it's very yeah. funny no, to, see, I, well, to me. I always thought when it came to test flu that, if there was a logical mechanism too, it was upregulation of your innate immune system because obviously your white blood cells mm-hmm. and your mast cells yep. have androgen receptors. Mm-hmm. So right. you, you've obviously gone from a physiological state where you're, 
your immune cells aren't being activated to a super physiological state. And especially if you go to a really high dosage very quickly, that sort of spillover of activation is happening in your immune system where your macrophages are just getting stimulated. Mm. And obviously you'll see an immune response where your immune system starts attacking any small little virus that's present and see that upregulation of immune function. Right. So that was right. sort of and where body temperature goes up and, and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. That it's, it's it's more so if you were ever to pick it a biochemistry or sort of a mechanism to it's it's that upregulation of the innate. But obviously, there's sort of conflicting pieces of information when we look at um, immune function when it comes to androgens and that. On one side, your innate immune system, which is like your macrophages, your neutrophils, the guys that come in and respond first, they get upregulated. But the other side is that your adaptive immunity gets dampened. So you've got right. you've sort of got two crossfires where your immunity to existing pathogens decreases. So if there is a cold or a flu going around, you're more susceptible to letting it into the system. But then you've got the reverse and that the innate immune system is upregulated, so it's going to attack this pathogen. So... When someone asked me like years ago about test flu, that was the only logical thing that I could think of from mm. like the literature studies we've done on immune function and androgens. Right, right. Yeah, you see that some guys that have this this supposed test flu, right? Whether that's the immune system or the, the carrier oil. What I usually tell them said, why don't you switch from an underground lab to actual pharmaceutical? You know where the carrier oil actually matches a little bit the the you know the release time and the half life of the ester instead of just dumping it all in the bloodstream with ethyloate or MCT oil for that matter, right? Yeah. Of course, and then you get this super high spike of testosterone and it all gets metabolized mm -hmm. into, right, in, in, into DHT and estrogen and all that stuff. And then you tell them, so, okay, why don't we switch the brands? Why don't we go with Bayer or something, you know, uh, compounded in grapeseed oil and without ethyloate, right? Not the underground lab way where they say grapeseed oil, but they actually have 20% ethyloate in there. None of this shit. Um, and then yeah. they switch, and then they realize, like, wait a minute, my test flu is actually non-existent. Yeah. Of course, you give them adequate time for the immune system also to kind of adapt to the situation. But these peaks and valleys, they're a lot less severe with the pharmaceuticals because the carrier oil is so thick and it takes days to metabolize. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> my sort of view on even um, pathogens and illness has sort of changed over the last couple of years. And to me, when you get ill... I mm. so you've got you've got two theories obviously and not to get into all mad stuff but you've got basically you've got terrain theory and you've got like the the pathogen theory germ theory mm. terrain is basically your body sets the scene for you to get sick and then germ theory is no well it's the germs that make you ill and what mm. I've sort of came to understand myself when you get ill and especially when you try and heal yourself when you're ill is that when you develop an illness or develop illness symptoms, it tends to be an antioxidant debt that you have to pay back to the body. And so, ah, like, one that of makes my, sense. One, yeah, that makes sense. One, yeah. of, one of my favorite protocols, if you ever get sick, again, this is hypothetical speaking, is either you can do IV glutathione, but liposomal glutathione, because it's so easy to access, you do 500 milligrams of liposomal glutathione every two to three hours, with a big bolus dose of vitamin A and vitamin D. So obviously you're upregulating the vitamin A and vitamin D receptors to enhance immune, mm. innate immune function <clears throat> and electrolytes, making sure you're getting adequate sodium 
potassium, magnesium, calcium. So again, you're hydrating the cells, which may be mm. under toxic burden. But most people have followed that sort of protocol. Within two days, their cold symptoms, flu symptoms right. are gone. And so I'm Where's starting to wonder. C? Where's the vitamin C? Uh, oh, well, well, liposomal vitamin C. <laughs> I'm, 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 I mean, I'm joking. I'm joking. I mean, it's I been mean, shown now that me, it doesn't really contribute that much. <laughs> to, but, but it does actually, because what, mm. what you've touched on a very good point there. Vitamin C is very important because it recycles vitamin E and glutathione from the, the mm. oxidized form of glutathione back to the reduced. Right. So vitamin C is important. I was going to get to that in that mm. if you put a load of glutathione into your system and it gets rapidly oxidized to, to the oxidized form, in order for that to recycle back, you do need vitamin C. So again, if you're not taking vitamin C daily, you're going to need mm. a big dose in to help that glutathione recycle effectively back to reduced GSH. So right. mm -hmm. anyone who gets ill when you follow this sort of protocol, their illness sort of disappears. And then to me, over the last few years, it's sort of like maybe when you get ill, it's you're ill because you've you've got this antioxidant, I guess, deficit or you've got this oxidation burden that your body's not able to keep up mm -hmm. with. And so you feel these physical symptoms. Yeah. Um, no, and I think a lot uh, of people that take steroids, of course, in are more oxidative stress environments because they, you know, steroids and training is literally studies out there that show that the oxidative stress goes up tenfold compared to people who just train without steroids. So you create this, right, antioxidant deficit that you just mentioned. Yeah. And people don't supplement accordingly, whether that's with the vitamin C or the glutathione, injectable or liposomal, or the NAC, right? Um, what N-acetylcysteine with glycine to help with glutathione production, yeah. and even taurine, you know, and and all these other antioxidants, ubiquinol. I think a lot of people are doing themselves a disservice, and thus are more susceptible to getting sick. Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's just it's one of those things where I've just seen it countless times over the years, even with like constant clients with impaired immune function, mm -hmm. myself even. When we moved into this house, we had the toxic mold and the mycotoxin yeah. mess that I had to clean up. That was an antioxidant death, as to speak, because I needed a lot of glutathione and a lot of bile to pull those toxins out of the system. So you, right. you start to see that, like, the whole mold toxicity with me was that I kept getting sinus infections. And I remember saying to my medical doctor, I went back for two antibiotics. And I said mm -hmm. to him, how... how how is this possible that we've tried like a macrolide antibiotic and now we're going with a tetracycline? Like we, we pretty much gone with the two heaviest because I'm allergic to penicillin. We, we've pretty okay, much yeah. gone with the two heaviest to kill off microbes. What if the whole sinus infection has got to do with mold and mycotoxins triggering an inflammatory response? Right. Oh, that can't be possible. And like I said to him, well, why can't you just prescribe me an antifungal nose spray and then we'll know Oh, no, no, here's your second prescription. I remember I went home and I compounded my own nasal spray. I got my conazole go. <laughs> and, and keto, ketoconazole right. cream and compounded my own nasal spray with saline water and um, sprayed out my oh, nose. So you had to dilute the cream, huh? Yeah, the break, so basically because it was 1% cream, I literally just worked out mm. a standard dose of 1%, weighed it out, got my pestle and mortar, gently heated it up with sterile water and then just bought a nasal diffuser and was just doing two pumps up into my nasal cavity of myconazole and ketoconazole that you, you get over the counter. I was just like, right, this, right. this, 
you know, like I'm trying to explain to you what I think is going on based on what my environment said. And you're you're like, a oh, mold doesn't exist. Mold doesn't cause X, Y, and Z. And it's slowly yeah. like that paradigm is slowly shifting because a lot of people are starting to see a lot of chronic health issues that are like unexplained. Oh, let's do a mycotoxin mm. test. And then they do a mycotoxin urinalysis and you see all like um, basically infestations of like okra toxin or um, yeah. mm-hmm. what, what's the other one that is very much like, um, is it xerolilinone? I think there's one of them mm. that basically mimics estrogen in your body. And I'm seeing this quite oh, a right. bit with yeah. consults mm. that you, you have this, uh, as far as I know, it's xerolilinone. It, it basically acts like 17 beta estradiol in a male. So I'm seeing issues in consults of guys with prolactin issues, reoccurring gyno issues. And so you, you do like a Dutch test. So you do a urinary right. analysis For to look metabolite. at the, right. the metabolites. And then you see there's this roadblock at 16-hydroxyestradiol. And then you see a roadblock at more so 4-hydroxyestradiol. And you're sort of like, okay, well, 4-hydroxyestradiol needs glutathione to come out. You implement like a, a protocol, a methylation protocol and antioxidants to help recycle and uh, basically eliminate right. that estrogenic load. You sort of, again, you educate them on xenoestrogens, on plastics and everything else. What do you wash mm-hmm. themselves in the environment? And so you get to this sort of route then where you see a mild improvement to like this reoccurring gyno, but it's not disappearing. Their blood work looks mm-hmm. perfect. The estradiol level under blood is perfect progesterone is perfect the prolactin is slightly elevated but not too high right. but then you get them to do a mycotoxin test and all of a sudden you see this xerolalanone and ochre toxin sky high and you're you're sort of like now we're starting to see that a lot of the environment is causing a lot of health issues that we're we're completely i guess unaware of or we're not classically trained about when you look at pharmacology no. and conventional medicine and it's not something you see on the on the blood work parameters, right? With conventional testing, you really need those specific no. tests, which you, it's not something you can get through your primary healthcare provider <laughs> in many cases. And then, um, and of course, mold toxicity is rare, but it's not uncommon, especially no. in the Western world, you know, where it's nice and damp and it's like the ideal temperature for mold. Um, and sometimes you don't even see it. You, the mold is underneath the house and it kind of recirculates through some of exactly. the air vents, you know, yeah. that, that some people have in the floor, right? And it's, yeah, it's very unfortunate when that happens because some people get it undiagnosed for years, just like Lyme yeah. disease, right? They, they got bitten by a tick a decade ago and they still walk around with it. Yeah. And it's, and it's uh, sort it's, of like, like Lyme disease where the pathogen is evading the immune system. Generally with mold, it's either it's, it's taking up residency inside your sinus cavity. Like your sinus cavity mm. is a damp, dark environment. So why wouldn't mold want to grow in your sinus? It's a perfect place for it. Yeah, it's a perfect place. <laughs> and so like when you're getting reoccurring sinus infections and you, you're going back antibiotic after antibiotic, eventually you just have to go, hang on, something's not right here. And yeah. and what, what led me down that rabbit hole was <clears throat> when I had the first exposure, we went away for a weekend, me and Morgan to like a spa hotel and I remember they had a really hot, dry sauna. I think it was like 105 degrees. And I think it was like the hottest sauna I've ever wow. been in. I was sitting in it for 20 minutes. My nasal cavity started to feel like really unblocked. And I was able to smell really well. I was like, wow, my breathing has really improved being in here. Got out, wiped myself off on the towel, 
I looked at the towel, there's all this black stuff all over the towel. I was like, what? <laughs> From sweat. <laughs> From my sweat, there was all this black stuff in my sweat. I got back in the sauna oh, no. again and I kept repeating it until my sweat was basically clear and I wasn't wiping anything off. Then that night, I had the best sleep ever where my body was just yeah. like completely relaxed. There was no sort of inflammatory response. And I remember then the next day, just Googling on my phone about excretion of mycotoxins. And one of the primary routes is through your sweat. So sweat, yeah. <laughs> that, that was like what put me down the rabbit hole of like, then like saying to Morgan, oh, I've got mold toxicity. Because you're sort of like, you know, that not gaslighting you, but like, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. Try, not this really taking it, it seriously. Yeah. <laughs> and so I went and I paid because this is another thing, like in consults, you're trying to explain to someone, we need to do this test. And then they're looking at the price, but it's like 300 pounds. And they're going, yeah. oh, do I have to oh, pay same that as much a Dutch money? Test. Yeah, same as a Dutch test or stool examinations. I mean, it yeah. costs a pretty buck, you know, but... Like if you want to take care of your health, you're just going to have to dish out. I mean, I, I've done, yeah. I've went through the ringer the last couple of years, just preventative heart screening, right? Because it's yeah. day, this day and age. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I just paid out of pocket, but you know, you have to, I'm not going to wait until somebody writes me a prescription when I'm already sick and half dead. No, you exactly. got to do it preventatively, you know, if you suspect it. And otherwise, okay, you, you spend the $300 to rule it out, but then you exactly. can continue to the next step instead of having it at the back of your head like, you know, maybe it is, but the 300 pounds, it's, yeah, it's a bit much. Yeah. Like know? then my, my okra toxin came back and it was like at 80. They, they don't have an actual range because it's it's like per millimole of creatine, creatinine in your, your urine. Mm -hmm. But it's basically on their chart was sky high. And I was like, to Morgan, when it came through, uh, see now, I wasn't like just messing in my head. Like this is something yeah. serious. And then you actually show her the research paper on okra toxicity in humans. And it's like causing stage two kidney cancers. So oh, shit. you're like explaining to her, like, this is like extremely nephrotoxic. Like the quicker you get this out of the system, the better. Yeah. Everybody's still complaining <laughs> so, about Boldenone being nephrotoxic. Uh, uh, <laughs> you got actually some serious <laughs> nephrotoxicity going on. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you look and like, I mean, that, that only for the recurrent sinus infection. Cause I remember a follower on Instagram, cause I put up stuff about being ill and what I'd be doing to get rid of illness. Right. They're like, you're mm -hmm. always, this is before like, the mold diagnosis you're always ill i'm like yeah you're actually right i am always getting sinus infections and it probably doesn't help that i'm always being prescribed the same route of antibiotics until i had to yeah, cop on to go hang, hang on this this isn't what's actually causing the problem and i have right. i've had one sinus infection since and that was because i was exposed to mold and i knew yeah. i was exposed to mold so as soon as i was exposed to mold I quickly started doing this sort of detox protocol of infrared sauna, um, some like binders, like clays and charcoal, glutathione. And within mm. like 12, 15 hours of the symptoms of a sinus infection coming on where your face starts to swell and the sort of pain, all of a sudden all this sort of really thick yellow stuff started flushing out of my sinus. And that was basically giving the immune system that, antioxidant death this is sort of where over the last while i've started to realize when you start to get this illness when you start giving your body the the defense that it needs it will right. basically clean up what it needs to and um mm -hmm. i avoided i avoided a full-blown sinus infection with that sort of protocol known i was i was in a room where there was clear mold in a, in a damaged building and um mm -hmm. stupidly but then knew that 
this when the symptoms of a sinus infection started to come on, I was like, hang on, this isn't a sinus infection. This is mold exposure. Right. Put the protocol right. and then you in take place. care of it with the antioxidant, right, with the antioxidant yeah. protocol as soon as possible. Then, then it only takes a couple of days, right, to get over that. Exactly. And, it, and it's yeah. like, you Good. know, you, you, you're, you're looking at all these things in your environment and you're, you're like doing everything as possible to avoid like EMF radiation and, you know, pollutants <laughs> and whatever else. And, and meanwhile, you've got this big hidden mold growth behind the concrete of your wall that you can't even smell or see. So no. it's, you know, it's, it's one of those ones that I'm now like when, when someone comes to me for consult and there's some like hidden issues, not to be like the, the mad, like mold conspiracy theorist, but sort of like, um, do you live in a water damaged building? Oh yeah, there was a bit of mold growing on my window in the back room of my old house. It's sort of like, well, now. There you go. That's it. Yeah. Look there first. Yeah. Look there first. So, yeah. I use, I have the same thing. If you know, you use, you do consultations and the blood work parameters are actually quite good, but the symptoms don't really match that. It's either a nicotine and the nine dinucleotide deficiency, right? Or uh, an antioxidant yeah. deficiency or something chronic like a mold toxicity or Lyme's disease, or, you know, some of these issues, celiacs, for example, something underlying that you don't really see right away, but it's, it's better just to go through the ringer and spend the money to get that diagnosed. Yeah. And then you can take affirmative action and, and more often than not, you can fix it in a week once you know yeah. what's actually going on. Yeah. Yeah. I saw him posting your Instagram about hair loss and nicotinamide yeah. adenine dinucleotide. And I think you and me are the only two who piece it together. <laughs> No, I'm serious well, we, because I, know, I, we, I made I a, I, <laughs> Yeah, I think I like I made a video about like post-finasteride syndrome and how to, you know, kind of mitigate it and upregulate the, the five health reductase enzymes type one, two, and three with nicotinamide mononucleotide or nicotinamide riboside supplementation because these enzymatic reactions are dependent on nicotinamide yeah. adenine dinucleotide. And I look at the comment section and it was on your post as well, right? People that come back later to report like, wait a minute. Yeah, that fucking fixed it. <laughs> you know, it's so funny, right? That you and me kind of piece that together. So, so you know, give me your insights. I want to know. I'll fill in afterwards. I so with me, obviously, we're we're starting to see a lot of like post. But what what sort of led me down this rabbit hole was a consult on um, post proacutane syndrome, which is very sort of like, I guess, non benign to. 5-alpha reductase mm. and also yeah. to aromatase inhibitor syndromes. And it was the whole thing of, I took roaccutane and now I have zero libido. And so yeah. mm -hmm. they're, they're like, what's going on here from a mechanistic perspective? And so then when you go down that rabbit hole, you see retinoids interfering with 5-alpha reductase activity and slowing 5-alpha mm. reductase down completely. And then the next step from that was, well, let's look at the mechanism. I already knew sort of the mechanism of 5-alpha reductase and how it reduces testosterone, but let's actually look and piece how the enzyme works to make DHT. And you see that it needs the NAD cofactor with FMN, like aromatase. And if it doesn't have NAD, the enzyme's not going to work. So to me, it just was sort of logic of <laughs> if the enzyme's not working, let's give it the substrate that it needs. And then the argument is sort of like, oh, I've taken supplements before and it didn't improve. And it's sort of like, well, if if there's that much oxidative stress in the body, like NAD is needed by like glucose 6-phosphate metabolism. Like if there's that much oxidative stress and you take like 
500 milligrams of NAD or um, the ribosomide version or NMM, whatever way you want to take, or even flush niacin, do you really think that small right. amount of NAD you make from taking a supplement is going to magically fix like a global enzyme deficiency? No, <laughs> and right. Like, and it, it takes you know, a while. I mean, you know, when, when they talk about magnesium, right, they say it's a, a, a 300 metabolic processes, biological processes are dependent on magnesium, but everything is dependent on NAD+. Literally everything. If you go to the list yeah. on Wikipedia, they tried to index that. It's over 10,000 enzymes that are dependent on, on NAD+, or NADP, or NADPH, right? The phosphate, whether that's oxidized or not oxidized. So people have no understanding how, how far this this simple supplementation protocol goes. And I, I noticed it because yeah. I started supplementing with NAD plus intravenously for the last one and a half years. And my, man, everything has improved, right? That's why it's an anti-aging drug because NAD plus levels already go down as you age. And guess what? When you take steroids, your NAD plus requirement goes up substantially, just like your glutathione requirement goes up substantially because, you know, yeah. the oxidative stress and the enzymatic reactions. And, 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 you know, I think a lot of people that, you know, experience post syndrome or um, have issues with aromatized enzymes right? because of the upregulation that comes along with uh, NAD plus um, uh, deficiency, right? Now your body starts yeah. to produce more aromatized enzymes to kind of like offset that because half of them are not even working. working. Right? And yeah. then suddenly, right? And then suddenly your NAD plus levels go up and guess what? Aromatized galore. Your estrogen levels just shoot it up. And it's, it's, mm -hmm. it was just sort of like, you know, when we're figuring out complex biology, you know, I can, I can understand conventional medicine's viewpoint on post-finasteroid syndrome is that it's psychosomatic and there's, yeah. uh, you can't argue that it's not psychosomatic in some instance in that if you sort of hyper-focus on having no libido, you're going to have no libido. You're going to have no sexual confidence. So there, there is yeah. a level of... True psychosomatism that plays into the syndrome but but there is a biochemical answer to the syndrome also as opposed to telling someone just man up like <laughs> which is sort of some of some of the, the advice that's given of like oh well go see a clinical psychiatrist and a clinical psychiatrist is prescribing antidepressants for your your low makes libido it even worse. because you're depressed <laughs> it even worse. Um, exactly so you're being funneled you're, you're being you're being yeah. funneled into a classical medical system not to get down that avenue but it's yeah. it's sort of like you know we we can put our thinking caps on here as, as biochemists or an interest in biology and actually figure out what what's gone wrong in response to either racutane finasteride uh, mm. aromatase inhibitors what we've used you know the, the, the third class generation aromatase inhibitors and look at, you know, how you're going to keep that body happy and supported. And mm. I mean, you then have to sort of look at when you have people who have these things, we're starting to even see, you know, adaptogenic mushrooms are the sort of next thing that's under fire for causing mental instability. And, and I'm not arguing that adaptogenic mushrooms don't cause issues because, to be honest, if you look at half the adaptogens that people take every day, we have no clue how they work biochemically. You just see, oh, take ashwagandha. Some people, we see their adrenal output increase. And certain yeah. people, we see a decrease. And we see cortisol drop. So we don't actually understand how, you know, for example, ash like ashwagandha, the withanolides, how they actually work mm. biologically, except take it and see how you feel. It tends to be what my approach is with adaptogens. Because yeah, and, it's, and it's and different for each if, different person. 
Right. And then in one sort of while, you know, blue moon, you get somebody who experienced Adedonia and then goes on a rampage online uh, that it's, you know, 100% Ashrock and the root extract's fault. But so many things can cause Adedonia or, or um, you know, libido issues. And, and in many cases, it's just multifactorial. Of course, you can pinpoint it one thing because that maybe pushed you over the edge, right? You were already yeah. 99% bad and now you went to 101% and now everything is kind of broken. And it might have been the, the lion's mane or the ashwagandha root or the finasteride, for that matter. Yeah. <laughs> right? But in many cases, there's an underlying health condition that is not diagnosed because you're deficient in so many things, the, the micronutrients, which contribute to enzymatic reactions. And it's, yeah, it's usually more problematic. But I, I really liked it that you made that Instagram post that came to the same conclusion as my video. Because um, I, I know that it can save so many people so many problems if they just look at these underlying things and just go back to the basics of the biology, yeah. I, I think, yeah, a lot of people can save themselves a world of pain, you know, but they have to spend a little bit of extra money on the NMN or the NAD plus, because uh, yeah. it's not I cheap. Mean, I, I, you know, I, you know? I, when you look at even the conversion process, obviously that the end part is NAD. You mm -hmm. can't you can derive it from nicotinamide or niacin, whatever form of vitamin B3 you want to. But again, mm. A thousand milligrams of flush niacin, it's not pretty to take, or even niacinamide. How much yeah. of that enzymatically at the end is getting you to NAD as it's being pushed down the mm. pathways? So, again, saying that supplements don't work, it can be a time issue, it can be a dose issue. You know, you can't you can't say the validity to the science is incorrect because you can basically prove, well, the enzyme works off this cofactor. And if you're right. not ingesting this cofactor in high amounts or you've got all this underlying dysfunction, you can't rule out that being your root cause. You know, you can't even test no, for it in no. your blood. So no. it's it's sort of and, like... And you don't know, right? You don't know how far the de deficiency goes. So like you mentioned in the beginning, if you think that a thousand milligrams niacinamide is going to fix it, maybe after a year of taking it every day, right? And maybe you want to take the fast track and actually go to an anti-aging clinic and just get 200 milligrams NAD plus administered. And then people complain about that feeling. Yeah, I did it this morning, so I know exactly what it feels like. It's not comfortable. It's literally in injecting anxiety, right? That much antioxidants, especially if you pair that with glutathione and vitamin C in, a, in the amino acid drip or in, in the amino drip, right? So it's, yeah, it, it, it's very potent, uh, but I think if you just go to the end stage and then get that addressed, I think you can f save yourself so many issues. I mean, my quality of life has improved basically on all levels ever since I've started doing these IV administrations. Yeah. yeah. Does it cost an arm and a leg? Absolutely. But it's worth it. Yeah. No, it's definitely. And I mean, you're, you're, you're starting to see that it's, you know, can you, can you put a price on the quality of life if you're going round with and Hedonia, and you're, you're feeling that sort of depressive nature. I mean, even to go back with my prep last year, when mm. I got to like, um, it's about four weeks out, my wife turned around to me and said, you know what, you never smile. And you never sort of seem to laugh, or you never seem to find any enjoyment that family days out. And I said, oh, well, you know what, you're, you're actually right. And then during my prep, I was taking, I'm, we've this product called the AM priming stack. And it's basically like what I took when I was a chemical engineer to just basically keep my emotions in check to any sort of fire that happened at work. You know, uh. like it, you know, if a 3 million pound machine broke down, I was wasting, you know, 
quarter of a million every five minutes. I'm sort of like thinking, okay, how can I fix this as opposed to getting pulled into all the emotionalities right. of someone shouting at you and trying to figure out how can I fix this as quick as possible. So I, we released that as a product, which is effectively like supposed to help adapt yourself to all levels of stress. But I can do such a good job mm. of it that if you're taking it chronically, you'll get to a point where your emotions are just blunted. So you're just like, you're just like, yeah, you know, you're just like, yeah, whatever. You know, something's gone really bad on prep. Or you're having like right. a really bad day. You're just like, yeah, whatever. You're just flat. That's the best way to explain it. And that, oh my God. that's, you know, that was chronically taken that adaptogen stack of ashwagandha, holy basil, rhodiola, bacopa, periwinkle for like eight to nine weeks straight from like probably yeah that, will, that will, yeah that will numb you out any phosphatidylserine in there to bring you down even further uh, i was taking out bedtime which is like oh, yeah yeah <laughs> stack so I, you know on, on prep last year i was like bulletproof mentally like just nothing phased me but it was just sort of like a four weeks out morgan said to me one day after being at the beach or something like you just you just don't smile like are you not enjoying yourself i'm like oh, am i really God. like am i really not like looking like I'm enjoying myself. She's like, yeah, you're just like, you, you exist, but you don't have any emotion. I was like, okay, well, that's the end of that. And the AM priming came out quickly. <laughs> so you, that, you got the tremble like, on your sandwich. You got the yeah. tremble on your sandwich effect without being on the tremble on. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, I, when, 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 uh, when we got to the, like the end stage of prep last year, in terms of like even hopping on the train, there was like, I think we used... 10 milligrams on training days only before right. training to try and stop. My body was basically at like 4% body fat. And I remember saying to Cal, like, this is the time to, for it to go in. Like there was no exogenous tea tree. There was nothing else. My metabolism was just mm -hmm. blazing. I was like a small little bit on training days, about two hours before training to make sure that one strength is being preserved, but also right, but that sort of cortisol, right. the, the cortisol metabolism is kept under control. And like, I remember explaining to people, like, you're asking, like, oh, how much were you taking? I was like, at the end, for, like, the last four weeks, 40 milligrams of Tren A. And you're like, you're like, like, every, like, second day? No, that was, like, per week. That's you're, like, it. looking at you going, like, <laughs> and you're, you, you don't need that much, you know, when you've got the rest of it set up correctly. You're literally using this to make sure that you don't turn into a skeleton. <laughs> exactly. Hey, hold that thought. I got to go to the bathroom real quick. One second. Okay. So you were basically on 40 milligrams tremble and acetate per week. And, you know, towards the end of prep, I mean, it's usually enough to kind of prevent the cannibalism right? and prevent you from yeah. going flat and that kind of stuff. Did you notice that the tremble on sandwich or going on tremble on, did it mess with your mind after being on this, you know, stack of, of ashwagandha root extract and everything that made you a little bit insensitive right, to outside stressors? No, I think, I think after, so that was four weeks out from the first show. And then obviously from mm -hmm. the first show to the, like the Irish nationals, I think it was four, four more weeks or five weeks from the, like the warm up mm -hmm. show to the Irish. So we obviously done a warm up show to sort of get used to being back on stage after five years. The, the sort of anhedonia from like the adaptogen stack had sort of, wore off by like say week five week six i started to notice that yeah i was starting to enjoy mm. things a bit better on like the this sort of like sunday family day aside from being like fatigued like physically uh, i was mm. pretty much like not fatigued mentally so definitely yeah. when when that went in 
there was no sort of sudden change. My sleep was absolutely perfect. I mean, that was one thing last year on prep between Callum taking care of nutrition and sort of liaising on sort of the stack. And then mm-hmm. Aaron, Aaron, who took care of my training, like Aaron really changed my paradigm to prep, like on its head. Which Aaron is this? Um, Aaron Casely. So he's known as Mofo Body okay. Mechanic on, on oh, uh, right, Instagram. Right, right. Yeah. He, he completely changed my paradigm to how you adopt like training principles to prep. Like the whole of prep mm-hmm. last year, I don't know sets to failure. Like pretty much yeah. my training was either three rear or two rear. So three reps in reserve or two reps in reserve. But it was really like strict uh, tempo-based training. So that was sort of how I knew when I was approaching like three reps in reserve or two reps in reserve by mm-hmm. being strict with the tempo. Right. And the like, tempo goes down and then you know that you're kind of, you know, pushing you're towards sort of, the end of the set. Yeah. You're hitting the end of the set. So it might have been like a set of eight to 12 at three reps in reserve, but it didn't really mm-hmm. matter if you got to 12 and that was when you had three reps in reserve, it was sort of like you had this gauge of when your tempo of like two seconds down, one second hold, two seconds up, one second hold, being really strict to that time, like counting it with each rep, when that cadence of being able to control the weight to that tempo either slowed down or became too hard, then you sort of knew, okay, I'm getting into the reps now where you have to really work hard to maintain the tempo. And so like, we we done no training. I think I had one week where he said to me, okay, let's go to zero to one rear. And this was like at like 16 weeks out. And from then oh, on right. in, it was all, it was all like three reps in reserve. So my sleep was perfect. My appetite was perfect because mm-hmm. I was never chasing recovery. And like Aaron's mm-hmm. whole philosophy to me was prep is about how well you can recover, not how well you can lose mm-hmm. fat. If you can recover optimally each day, from your training, from your sort of deficit, from your steps, from sort of small bit of cardio, your body will have no choice but to lose body fat because there's going to be no central nervous system stress. Your sleep is going to be unaffected. Like I remember last year, I'd go to bed at 10 o'clock and wake up at 5 a.m., like seven hours sleep undisturbed and sort of, you know, never had any of the the sort of androgen-induced insomnia or any sort of elevated heart rate where you're trying to fall asleep but your body's that wired but tired that you don't fall asleep. Mm. I, I had known it. Like, my right. prep, when we got to the end, I could have maintained that sort of prep as a lifestyle because the recovery was taken care of. The nutrition right. was at, at an adequate level. Uh, you, you never had issues of, like, even when I went to train, not once during prep last year that I, like, sit outside the gym in my car and go F this I'm not going in today or like worry look at my logbook and go oh I have to I have to match these numbers today oh god help me it was sort of like you I went think, in go I think Dor- Dorian Yates is now smashing his head against the keyboard because <laughs> he knows uh, it's like, this is not the way to train but he also secretly wishes that he did it something similar because like I'm sure your mood and your overall cognition was 10 times better during this prep than previous ah, preps and I, i'm noticing the same thing right now right i'm noticing the same thing right now the previous cycle that i did i tried to keep like one or two reps in the reserve maybe one or two sets to failure per workout and now i'm getting back into the gym and i'm keeping two or three reps in reserves and everything in life is better you don't have this perpetual rain cloud over your head and the weird thing is yeah. like we think we need to train this way to deal with our anger 
especially when we're younger, I, I need to vent all of this rage that I have. But it's he sets the failure that actually keeps that alive. And if you eat back, you realize like, wait a minute, I'm in a much better place mentally and, and emotionally and productivity wise, but I'm still just as big. If anything, you're a little bit fuller because you don't have this, you know, crazy muscle damage that you potentiate with these extra reps just grinding through your teeth, you know? And that, that was pretty much like when Aaron took over like that off season when we spoke last year, he, he even mm. said to me, he's like, right, you're never going to try into mechanical failure. He said, at, at best, we'll do a cyclical approach where like, you'll do like undulating periodization where you'll do three reps in reserve one week, then the next week two. And then if you're feeling it, let's go to one rep in reserve and really tap into those high threshold units. But he said, mm -hmm. it's always going to be dependent on what your body's dictating on how far you're going to push that, that recovery. There's no point. Like if your HRV is mashed, just going, Oh, well, let's beat the logbook today. Cause that's what we do. <laughs> that I, I'm, I'm not against progressive overload i've done it for so many years but it led to so many issues like nearly paralyzed myself you've probably seen the video with the rdls where literally yeah, I, I had two two torn hamstrings that i had no idea about and then i went down with 220 kilo rdl and came up and i just felt this ping and my back literally was like this <laughs> yeah i <laughs> that, see you know I've seen it. yeah you know, you're 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 chasing after a logbook, thinking that you have to beat this number, but that's not actually what is really generating the tension for you to build effective muscle tissue. So I do, I like, I do sit in the camp of there is an element of progressive overload, but there's also that element that you can incorporate that into like reps and reserve based training, where you are still increasing your load. So there's no doubt that you have mm -hmm. to keep increasing your load, but it doesn't come at the sacrifice of tempo and it doesn't come at the sacrifice Four, of recovery right. whereas right, before right. like i i'd hack squat like nine plates aside and literally just bounce <laughs> out of it like get really really angry <laughs> reps at all costs right exactly. and it, this is I, st I still see this going on instagram now they said people i follow progressive overload this is the only way to train they do an exercise and they pause and you know the weights go up and they pause longer <laughs> So they have now basically six reps, but all max out attempts, uh, like a power lifter. And in between, it's literally one minute on the machine just waiting before their neck. Yeah, I got six reps, but they're not continuous, and the form got worse on every rep. You know, so I'm nowadays, of course, I'm not, as, I'm not as big as these guys, so I'll be the first one to say that, right? I'm not in the gram of training either, so maybe that, that doesn't help. Um, but, but, you know. You're just switched on a very valuable point there. You're... You're masking your recovery with more drugs. So yeah. you 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 then dial back the drugs and increase recovery and you need less drugs to grow more. So you know there's the valuable lesson here of are you yeah. compensating for your really bad recovery with more drugs? Because the drugs are making up for that lack of recovery from your <laughs> your overzealous training. Plus plus your organs at one point they're literally gonna fall out of your butt cheeks and then just run away from that like kind of lifestyle they're like no nope, out we quit yeah and they're, they're off i mean <laughs> i mean someone asked me about prep and obviously with retirement and when you sort of fulfill that goal and you don't have another goal like i, I remember thinking after finishing competing oh I'd, I'd compete again and then i had to sort of ask myself am i competing for myself or am i competing to prove to others that i can do it again and when the answer right. became i was doing it to prove other people then it was instantly, well, you're not doing it for yourself anymore. So no, that, that decision to compete again goes out yeah. the window because you're just doing it for but, to, to, 
prove other people wrong. Um, but, but I think half of the competitors have a huge chip on their shoulders and actually compete for that very reason. Yeah. yeah. And you, you, they want you to prove other people wrong. You know? And you can get sucked into it. I mean, I knew like when I was even an amateur in Ireland, I was getting always top six finishes, but I always was always falling short. And like last year was mm. sort of like, it's now or never to prove that you can do it. Um, right. and, and obviously afterwards you, you can, you sort of look back at it and go, that prep was so easy. I'd do it again. And that, that in theory, what was so easy getting down to that level of body fat and holding it with having that recovery, obviously mastered and being, you know, diligent with having your recovery ticked off each day that when you sort of view, Oh, let's prep again. And when the answer is not for yourself, then just walk away. And I mean, that's, that's right. if anyone's listening to this, if you're a competitor, you know, really, ask yourself and be really honest with yourself of why you're competing. And if it's for mm -hmm. social proof or social validation, it's really not worth it. You're, you're never going to It's also not seek. necessary. Well, exactly. I mean, I'll be the first one to say that it and prove that it's not necessary because now I got one of the biggest educational platforms on YouTube, right? I got 90,000 subscribers and Right now, I'm going to say that I never competed. So a lot of people are already turning off, right? Oh, he never competed. He shouldn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> but I still, you know, got my word out there. And I still get, you know, a warm welcome into the fitness industry, even though from a competitive scene, I'm basically a nobody. Still, you know, and now I'm going on a larger podcast. I'm going to go to the Swiss convention, you know, in, in Ohio. And then I'll be, you know, part of panels that are, you know, for very established uh, athletes. But still, you don't have to compete to make your mark in the fitness industry. You just have to contribute something of value, right? And I contribute my information and knowledge. And you can other people can contribute their physique. It can be very inspiring, like Joel Stittics. I mean, he he did compete twice, but he inspired millions just to get into the gym with you know his crazy uh, physique, right? So so I think a lot of people they they're looking for the social validation through competing, but it's really not required. No, it really is. I mean, you know, it, it was, it was just as even like the the honest question to my wife was, you know, no one gives a shit how I look like visually other than myself. The the photos are brilliant yeah. to have where you can prove this is what I look like, mm -hmm. but no one sort of views me for my physique. So I'm only validating that physique for myself as opposed to validating it for people's opinions. And that once yeah. sort of competing again became a question of, I wanted to prove to people I could win and keep winning. It was like, you're not even trying to prove it to yourself anymore that you can win. No. It's you're proving it to other people. It's time to, to walk away. And that was the right decision. Right, right. And I agree. I think if you, if you can maintain once in a while, you know, like a, a six, weeks, six weeks out physique for a show, to kind of show that you uh, practice what you preach, which a lot of educators, yeah. they, they preach a lot, but they don't practice. Not naming any names. <laughs> but like at least you show up like looking good and, and your blood work is good and you have a great physique for, you know, moderate dosages. And I try to do the same. Like once in a while, you got to show that you mean business, you know, but that doesn't mean you have to step on stage at the end process. Like my wife, for example, she was a, a competitor, right? She competed 17 times, never, ever placed out of the top three. Never. Three world championships, three Asian championships, one Southeast Asia and one uh, Mr. Thailand, right? the regionals. Won everything. And everything else, she was second or third. Now she's been retired for four to five years, just enjoying her life as a housewife, supporting my YouTube channel. And nobody remembers. 
Nobody remembers. And that's it's the rough. thing. I, I, and all the, I, uh, let me add, let me add this one thing. Let me add. When you go to the muscle factory in Padia or in Bangkok, all the trophies that are there, right? We put the trophies in the gym. That's normal courtesy if you compete, right? You put the trophies there. All the best trophies are hers, and nobody cares. <laughs> it's sad, right? It's sad. Yeah. It's sad. And I, I had the same conversation with someone of like when I was starting bodybuilding in my like early twenties, when I was twenty three, twenty four my first sort of competitive season in Ireland, all the like really inspiring Mr. Ireland's from then, no one knows who they are. If I went into a gym today and said, oh, do you remember X, Y, and Z? Oh, who's that? Oh, well, he won Mr. Ireland in 2011. Having a clue. And it's, it's sad that, you know, mm-hmm. people don't know that heritage of the guys that came before you. But the other side was you have to realize that you're just going to be another name. So no one's going to care that I won classic bodybuilding class in 2022, like five years time. It'd be sort of like, you know, there's been five other champions. Yeah. So, you know, you, you have to realize right. that if you're, if you're going to do this, you do it for yourself and you, you do it for your own validation right. as opposed to other people's and more so, you know, even with family that like last year, that was more so what drove me to, to do the business as to speak was, I want to finish this mm. to get out of this sport for my, you know, for my kids and be able to right. devote my time as much as I did to bodybuilding and training and eat my meals, devote that time now to, to my sons that I'm not looking at the clock, not worried about having to train. Like if I don't train a day in the past, I would get wound up. I'm not going to lie. You'd be right. sort of like, Oh, today was a wasted day. I didn't get to train. Whereas now if I don't get to train like on holiday, you just sort of like, yeah, well, the gym's going to be there tomorrow. You know, I had, you know, I ate healthy today. I've taken my supplements. You've done X, Y, and Z. Training is such a right. small part to the equation that you can always go tomorrow. And, um, no, you know, exactly. That, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That, that, yeah. that mentality shift of being a competitor to post compare life, you, you almost do need to have some sort of purpose that's pulling you away from, from competing and, and be, just as serious to that new purpose as you were when you were a competitor. I think business. I think for most of us, we kind yeah. of transition into business. You see it with a lot of the guys that I recently did podcasts with. Instead of doing this hardcore bodybuilding lifestyle for competing, they just move into business and they're super successful. Right? They're kicking ass and they're on social media and they're promoting their whatever product or service that they offer. I mean, I'm doing the same. I'm not going to lie about it. Um, I think it's, it's much more fulfilling because – you know, being successful through an ender- endeavor where you're actually making money, this also allows you to take care of your family 10 times better yeah. than bodybuilding, where you're always distant. It's always about you and every little last bit of money that you have, you sink into another kit of growth hormone. Um, and I think that's the wrong approach in the long run, right? Maybe in the in the short run when you're young and single and you, know, you really want to go uh, pro and that kind of stuff, right? Everybody wants to go pro nowadays. Um, and if you can make it, good, good on you. Because, you know, at the top, you can make a fuck lot of money, Big let's money. be honest. I mean, look at Chris Bumstead and Jay Cutler and all these guys. So if you can capitalize on it, perfect. But if you're not that inclined, I think if you just focus this effort on business, you can accomplish so much more for yourself and the family that a holiday to Mauritius or Japan or, you know, America, that's just an afterthought, you know, the finances that are involved with that. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, and that's more so again, even with like the, the freedom now we're moving mm-hmm. into even supplement needs of like taking a three week vacation of just switching off and keeping yeah. an eye on small ticking over things, but 
being able to really just go right three weeks of pretty much no no work other than maybe half an hour on the laptop in the morning time drinking a coffee that mm-hmm. you can have that freedom to switch off and tell people like leave me alone for three weeks <laughs> <laughs> it's tough though it's tough because i mean guys like us were always in demand i remember last time i went on holiday i still had one consultation every day but in the morning just before i went out uh yeah because otherwise it just you know it kind of you know consolidates and then by the time you get back you have like six hours of consultations per day yeah it's 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 too much you know that's that's what happens when you're very popular on social media um yeah but it's good it's good to kind of go ahead i was gonna say with with, with us we we just i i said my wife ordered on checking in on supplement needs that was it i'd be no consults i had one coaching client that was doing the NABA World Championships, he mm. checked in with me. We're not just pretty much my day revolved around waking up, drinking coffee, and then being pulled into the villa pool at like quarter to eight in the morning for two hours. <laughs> beautiful. That's <laughs> so, beautiful, dude. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to join you. I think hopefully we'll have some good news at the end of the year because my fertility parameters came back almost flawlessly. 500 million semen. Uh, of sperm per, per ejaculate. Yeah, it's crazy, right? And the morphology is around 12% and the mortality was was close to 40 or high. No, 70, 70 something. So, yeah, insane numbers. And uh, so we're basically ready to conceive finally. And then I think a couple months down the line, we should have some good news. Yeah. Fingers crossed. And it's time also. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, and that, that then in terms of like even your time management, when something like that comes along, you're... Mm-hmm. your your value of time will completely change as well because you you start yeah. to view every every moment away from your kids as sort of time lost really um right yeah that's that what was, everybody that was, told me so once you have kids you, 10 minutes at the gym extra forget about it so everybody yeah. in the gym is going to think i'm a dickhead <laughs> because i'll be like yeah yeah no questions i'm let's schedule <laughs> yeah. a consultation <laughs> i'm out the door <laughs> and, and uh, you're 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 speaking very truly like it's um you you uh even your sort of viewpoint in life like i even like even with prep last year i remember like eating my last meal some nights and thinking like what am i doing here like <laughs> you're, you're sort of yeah what what your your mortality completely changes when you become a father your, your mortality you question everything of like what happened if i didn't wake up tomorrow morning as crazy as it sounds mm-hmm. you're you're just like thinking is is the choices I'm doing today serving tomorrow and the future of those sort of dependents? Um, right, right. Yeah, you got to maximize it, your time. I mean, especially recently, I'm, I'm, you know, very faced with my own mortality since there's so many, you know, people in the fitness industry dying. So I got my will already, and I'll update it every month. I even got a video ready for the guys in case I die. Then I, you know, can just post it, speak beyond the grave. I'll update that one every six months, also, just in case, right? But I do realize that every day you got to kind of maximize everything because you never know when it's taken away from you, and especially yes. when you have kids. I mean, you know, you don't want to leave them kind of unfathered um, prematurely. So I think going forward, my experimentation phase is kind of behind me because I've, I've done so many experiments over the last years to the enjoyment of the fitness industry. Um, they love it when I do experiments, but I think I think it's no longer, you know, a good idea to do that. Because I'm literally yeah. using my body as a guinea pig, you know. And and it's uh, you know I I really enjoyed 
looking at what you can sort of achieve with, you know, certain peptides or, or anything like mm-hmm. that. I think, I think probably you'll, you'll still view experimentation from a longevity perspective of how can I actually now stay alive until right. I'm 90, mm-hmm. as opposed to right. how big can I get? So you, you see right. there's, there's a complete paradigm shift in your mentality of I'm still going to look really lean and you know muscular but i'm gonna also look at the aspects of how can i live until i'm 70 like i remember saying to morgan jokingly if i can have this sort of physique that i have now at 35 when i'm 70 you know job done (laughs) yeah no i agree (laughs) i agree like even now i like i've been off cycle for six months right but i'm still you know decently strong and heavy and, and that kind of stuff and i think if i just maintain this 95 kilos I think that's more, and I, I know I only need, you know, half an ampa test and an ampa primo to get it done, and that's. I mean, I don't, I don't see myself not running that indefinitely based on my blood work parameters, but you know, doing a crazy cycle with a two grams of test, and even though I fantasize about these things sometimes, yeah, right, because it's the training, the training, the legendary training that comes along with that, but. You know, I mean, for, for that one, one and a half hours in the gym, is it really worth it? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm turning 40 this year. And uh, yeah, I'm sure once once we have kids and I see them born and then I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know. Yeah, you, you, you do. You completely like one, one changes your perspective. And then two is just like, OK, well, now, now things have completely changed. And again, that was mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I chose to quit my job to go to Supplement Needs was... Again, the, right. the luxury of being at home, seeing the boys grow. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the first year when Callum was born, I spent half the year away, like physically away working in oh, Dublin, wow. which is like a three-hour drive. So at the end of that year before uh, all mm-hmm. the craziness, I when you, when you added up the time, I was away either three or four days per week for his first year of life to his first birthday. So you sort of then view it that, you know, I missed six months of being in person with him, seeing him every day on video call, which is amazing that Mm. we have that technology now. But being away from him physically for that much time, even though it was only half a week every week, when you go back and look at it, you know, you're going, you've missed half, half of the first year in person. And that, that to me was just like, you know what, the, ability to work from home and be present and see all these precious memories is is to me a, a huge value because mm-hmm. eventually you're going to get to a point like our first son Callum he's starting his first year of primary school this year so he's going to be gone from 9 until 2 p.m. Monday to Friday now so you yeah. you lose you lose that time when he goes to primary education you lose that time with him so to me, in my mind, I wanted to make up as much time as possible in person before he went and, and effectively is out of the house for half the day. Right. So your your working hours are basically going to be from nine to two, and then you have to get your workout yeah. in during this time as well. So that's what I figured, right? First three years, you have like all the time together with your kids. And then once you start going to primary school and then, you know, the middle school and that kind of stuff, you actually gain a little bit of hours during the day because then you, you have the, the green light to spend time on work or going to the gym or that kind of stuff. So that's ultimately where I want to be. Um, just a couple hours per day, you know. And I, you know, to be fair, I can basically retire if I wanted to, but I still enjoy doing the YouTube videos. Um, so, so by the time I have kids, I'm I'm really dialing back my my workload. 
because uh, this, this is one of the reasons why we wanted to wait so long, you know, till we're 40 and financially secure enough to kind of say, okay, today I'm not going to work. And if that turns into a week of not working, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and uh, you know, and it's, and it's given a good value then to, to like your, your children of being present all the time. And in mm. that, you know, that was, that was another big thing with, with us in discussing like childcare. So, Morgan has right. her own business, her own clinic. And mm. so on a Wednesday and Thursday, the two boys spend from nine till six in daycare. So on a mm. Wednesday and Thursday, Morgan runs her clinic from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. And so I get I get nine till six undisturbed. So if I've got a lot of work, Wednesday and Thursday, sort of like, that's it, no gym. It's literally, as soon as they go into crash till I collect them from crash. It's just as much work as I can cram into those two days. Right, and then I can right. ease, ease off the gas. Then at the weekend, do nothing Friday, you know, take care of some jobs or something that needs, but I can hmm. make sure that on those two days, when there's no distractions, those are the sort of workflow days to right. capitalize right. on that, that being out of the house. So it'd be the same when you go to, to primary school, you've got now five days, and so you sort of see the first four years are really vital of getting to see every last little bit because uh -huh. beyond that sort of fourth year, they're in primary school for nine months of the year. So again, you, you lose five yeah. days where you don't see them for quite a bit of time. And it's, right. it's, it's sad, but it's also liberating, but it's sad in that you see how quickly time passes as well. No, I know. Like for them, it goes super fast. I remember when I was a uh, young kid and then you realize that you have so many hours in the day, right? And then I have to go to bed and it felt like a lifetime, you know, for me now, you know, it feels like, oh, I have to go to bed again. And the next day yeah. is, I have to, <laughs> I'm done already. And you got it. Don't get me wrong. Like I get a ton of work done during the day. I mean, it's, now it's two o'clock in the morning and I, I go to bed maybe two hours from now and I got so much work done today. Um, that as a kid, you can't really fathom it. But literally, I realized before I go to bed, like, wait, my day is done already? So your time yeah. perspective really changes as you get older. But I am looking forward to that three-year three, three -year down period and then slowly ramping up the work. What I do see with a lot of bodybuilders when their kids are like 10, 12, 15 years old, that they start picking it up again because their kids are now self-sufficient. They are self-reliant. And they're like, you know what? I remember this bodybuilding thing that I really, really loved that I put on the back burner for so many years. Now it's my time again to, um, you know, to kick some ass in the gym. And I think a lot of guys actually get some longevity because of this reason, because they don't have this wear and tear on the organs, on the joints, on, you know, their lifestyle and that kind of stuff. So they, they get like a second phase of bodybuilding in maybe their 50s. Um, and then they, they really end up looking good. And they're also revitalized because they took such a long time off. Uh, Paul yeah. Burnett, for example, right? He just got back into bodybuilding and he's making all the gains, but he, he basically took off because from bodybuilding because he wanted to focus on his kids and focus on his business. And then he looked like a normal Joe Blow during that time. I mean, it's yeah, if you see the before and after pictures, it's quite dramatic, but it's good to see him having kind of, and, and uh, Justin Harris, same thing. Right, they kind of took yeah. a step back, and now they're back and and kicking ass. It's funny to see. Yeah, so there I, is I like hope it, for guys like us. Uh, definitely, I mean, I, someone said to me recently, "Oh, well, you can go back and compete as a master at some point if you want." But again, it, it comes back to you have to want to compete for yourself as opposed to, you know, you're a fifty year old 
ex Mr. Ireland, I'm going back to prove a point <laughs> that, <laughs> that, you know, it, it, you, you almost, again, it has to be a, a, a self, I, I guess, self-motivated goal to go back and compete like that. But yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Like I said to you, when I, when I sort of finished, I said to Morgan, if I can maintain the sort of physique I have now, that's lean, that's sort of sitting at mid 90 kilos mm-hmm. um, with minimal, if anything, you know, mm. I'll be happy, you know, and that, that's sort of the, the goal here now moving forward of is gone are the days of going into the gym and smashing, like, let's see how heavy I can lift. It's almost going in, let's move my body, let's contract some muscles and let's gain the metabolic mm. benefits from from training right. now as opposed to let's go in and try and maximize every training session for tissue. Yeah, but I think your overall quality of life is now 10 times better because you don't destroy yourself in that one hour in the gym. And then the other 23 hours, you can actually accomplish something. This, this is yeah. what, what was my main issue when I was hardcore bodybuilding at, you know, 120 kilos. It's just you give everything of your life into the one and a half hours that you're in the gym. And then everything else is kind of lackluster. You know, you're tired, yeah. you're moody, hungry, unproductive. But you you don't miss any meals. You don't miss any injections. Of course not. Right? It's that's the bodybuilding life. So I'm I'm surprised to see that some of these IFB pros now that are doing the Olympia Olympia level com- competition, right? They literally sink everything into it, but they still accomplish quite a bit outside of the sport. Right? So that's good to see. But it seems that it's a rarity, you know. And of course, they got yeah. great coaches and great financial backing that it helps. But it's, it's uh, yeah, most of the guys I see, you know, that give off everything for bodybuilding and they, 10 years later, they have nothing to show for it, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, you know? it's, um, it's sort of like, again, if you're, if you're an amateur and you're, you're chasing after getting professional status, the amount of finance you're going to have to sink into chasing after a pro card, if you're not like one of the lucky 5%, that's going to be, you know, a successful pro immediately. You sort of have to reevaluate. Would you be better off putting all that time invested into something more so building your own brand as opposed to trying to achieve a status for the sake of saying you're an IFBB pro? It's yeah. it's it's sort of it's lost its it's lost its meaning a little bit and how not achievable it is, but how accessible it's become that it's no longer sort of a, a rite of passage of being the best of the best it's almost like who's turned up on the day and who's been rewarded that being an it's, it's quite pro diluted. doesn't, doesn't yeah, carry the same financial weight yeah. i mean i remember and, and, uh, you know add to that all the all the kids who are on social media who are have 10 times bigger followings that they're engaged with way better and they their revenue streams i mean i i, I see the sales figures from some of these supplements companies and these kids who have never competed, who've got huge followings, they turn over pre-workout like, like cocaine. Yeah, <laughs> it, uh, it's scary. The amount, the amount, no, they make like sixty to a hundred thousand dollars a month just on, yeah. on sales, and and no IFB Pro generates that. None of them, you know, maybe Jay Cutler and Chris Bumstead, but most of these pros they don't turn it over. Uh, the amount of sales uh, that these social media influencers do, you know, and 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 their expenses uh, are ten times higher. I think the the legacy contracts of like ten, fifteen thousand pound or dollars per month, like salary mm. contracts are gone. It's it is it's gone. you know being being within that sort of supplement industry, a lot of it is is influencer marketing now, which is you know which is tactful on the company's perspective, but 
it's no longer sort of before you became an IFBB pro, you picked up a big contract with one of the big mm. US manu- like manufacturing companies. And that was you sort of settling that you got your wage, you've done your photo shoots, you're in the magazines, you're at some of the expos promoting supplements that you probably didn't take. And you got a nice big paycheck at the end of the month and allowed you to compete at a couple of big competitions a year. But but that was sort of how the industry moved, like in the mid-2000s. And then obviously with social media in the last five or six years, once you've got a good following, a good social proof, um, good marketing capability, you can generate quite a lot of money, like you've said there, with certain supplement brands where it might not be the most efficacious product but the marketing buys people into it and they, they earn a good wage yeah from. and and they have worldwide coverage you know which helps a lot also because you know social media is worldwide and not just america not just the uk not just australia uh, you yeah. have worldwide coverage for a supplement brand you 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 know and you have an audience of a couple of social media influencers that that you know service the entire world you can make a lot of sales you know and it's and of course, cost and marketing and all that stuff. I mean, it's with every product, right? That that goes on with it. Uh, but I think a lot of bodybuilders are kind of overlooking that. And I see some of them really adopt the the social media life, which is good. Like, yeah, you know, Martin Fitzwater, it's one of the new IFB yeah. pros, younger guys. Yeah, yeah, I know, know right? the name. Yep. So, so, so he produces his shorts and he does, you know, a lot of content. And of course, Nick Walker and and uh, you know, uh, Derek Lunsford, all these guys that produce a ton of content. And trust me, their their sales are far outshining any prize money or, or actual supplement sponsorship deal uh, that they get, right? because they're active on social media. Yeah. Um, so so I wonder how many how many like freaky genetic uh, individuals that could be phenomenal pros pros in the back end of the '90s and the 2000s, right? With a good supplement uh, sponsorship, and they would just you know go balls to balls to the wall for bodybuilding. How many of those guys are we now losing to social? media influencer status because they can do 10 times better for half the work right yeah. from a bodybuilding perspective of course you know making pictures and you know videos that takes hours out of the day as well it's not just yeah let's make a video and throw it online it's not that simple unfortunately i wish yeah. i'd have a lot more content <laughs> if yeah, it was <laughs> very, very selective and even in terms of like marketing and imagery it mm-hmm. like that that's one thing now that we're starting to view even as a, a supplement company with supplement needs that we mm. we started as a bodybuilding company and everything I formulated hasn't just been for bodybuilders, but the bodybuilding demographic was obviously first and foremost, sort of primary care aspect of what I wanted to introduce, like the heart stack, liver stack. And mm. if you're going to do these drugs, these are the, the mechanisms to disease and these supplements might offset it. But we're now starting to, you know, branch into general population and branch into longevity. Um, you know, people who are really yeah. into like biohacking and seeing that there is a way to sort of extend quality of life beyond pharmaceutical mm-hmm. drugs that supplements can play into it. So even our sort of brand imagery is slowly changing and that bodybuilders will always be at the forefront of why I started mm-hmm. formulating these things. Right. But also for them to realize that heart stack is just as good for their parents or for their aunties and uncles as it is for mm-hmm. a bodybuilder because they were never designed just for bodybuilders. Right. Um, 
Uh, and I think because you and me were both come from a bodybuilding background, so that's kind of where you started. But I, I saw the progression of my YouTube channel and, and things I talk about on the YouTube channel. It's so much more diversified because the bodybuilding, the core audience is actually very small. And, and let's be honest, most of the bodybuilders are not financially secure because they spend all their money on drugs. So they don't have money for blood work or supplements or consultations or coaching even. So you have to, as, a, as an educator, you kind of have to diversify and kind of branch out to all these other demographics where people are maybe a little bit more financially secure because they don't spend so much money on PEDs and they have some disposable income for other stuff, right? And then you realize that, wait a minute, there's so many people out there who could benefit from the information that we gained from bodybuilding, but they're not necessarily bodybuilders. And I think that's why yeah. my, my YouTube channel has been growing more. And of course, Derek from More Place More Dates is always hammering into me, like the audience is not just bodybuilders, Steve. It's just people interested in fitness. And if you, you know, make it a little bit more accessible to people who are interested in fitness, you can grow 10 times better. And I, I, I'm sure supplement needs will see something similar once you start branching off to general health. It's, um, yeah, you can literally 10x, you know, your revenue. Yeah, it's, it, it's it, you, you've just nailed on your head that mm. you, you almost see that the, the hardcore supplement users are the ones who have disposable income versus... Mm. not to like put like stereotypes but you will find most bodybuilders will look at what's the cheapest sort of supplements that i can take to sort of tick off the box as opposed to being the most health conscious as to speak right and the ones then that are sort of tapped into it and then view that being a little more premium with their sort of budget in terms of longevity pays off better than going for like the cheapest thing that they can find on like amazon or google mm. that you you almost you you bring them across from that sort of bare necessity mentality to well this is actually a necessity for longevity because at the end of the day when you finish bodybuilding you don't want to have x y and z health problems or be having to then chase after diagnosis for you know dyslipidemia or this that and other that you could be proactive when you're in your career with with supplements so i think you know you are you are always going to have a core audience and for me that is obviously with bodybuilding and pds and mm. getting guys to realize that but the other side of it like you said is trying to get those guys then to maybe say to their parents or to their aunties and uncles or their whatever nephews take some trt take some trt but you know what you know and that that is quite a valuable um chat like i was speaking to someone recently and they were only speaking mm. about their dad and the, the dad was feeling a little run down and then they had the blood stone and the total test was at eight. And they were trying to explain to their dad that, you know, if you optimize your testosterone level to like even 16 or 18, mm -hmm. so you're, you're pretty much doubling your natural level with some TRT, your quality of life will exponentially increase. Your risk to disease will probably be balanced and that you're offsetting metabolic diseases whilst mm -hmm. also potentially skewing your lipid panel ever so slightly, but you're, you're, you sort of have this sort of seesaw where it's probably balanced, but there's more longevity to be gained from it as opposed right. to disease. Plus, plus it kind of forces you to eat better. So right, in that sense, you're like, oh, wait a minute, yeah. if you take all the, you know, all, the, all the shitty food that makes you feel so shitty, then, then you know, your lipids on TRT will improve as well. I, I've had this discussion with my dad who's become a lot more health conscious after, you know, having some, uh, you know, medical conditions. Um, but he, he didn't have, he didn't want anything to do with it. So at least he's eating better. So that helps. 
and he's taking yeah, some over counter I mean, supplements. So he's really he's really tuned into the taurine and the you know the glycine and NAC right and all that stuff. And I think eventually he'll come over for you know TRT, but maybe that's further down the line. But I know a lot. Of, I know a lot of bodybuilders you know are of our age. They got their parents on TRT or at least a dad and maybe the mother on some sort of DHEA protocol. And then they realized like, oh man, it's like my, my parents are like 20 years younger, you know, energy wise and mentality wise, because they have so much more energy. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's, it, you know, it, you, you can have the conversation of as you're uh, aging, you don't want to see a decline in quality. Why would you want to see a decline in quality in terms of like, mm-hmm. um, I guess, geriatric diseases or uh, like even frailty onset? Like, why would you want to? lose the quality of life that you have like imagine extending your 50s into your 80s basically so there, there's yeah. you know there's there's no need for to to age with what we have access to now in terms of no. not being able to keep the body in a, in a healthy state and you know i even have these conversations with my own parents so it's mm. you know it's 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 all about what we sort of have learned from bodybuilding hopefully it's being passed over to general population and that, you know, telling bodybuilders, you take PDs, you're going to suffer LDL oxidation. Oh, well, hang on, mom and dad, you're on statins, but did you know LDL oxidation is actually what is probably the primary driver to the plaque? So even taking your statin, it's decreasing your LDL production by 50%, but you're still oxidizing all that oxidizing LDL it. you're making. <laughs> yeah. So, you yeah. know, so you need you, some antioxidants you, and, and, you know, yeah. uh, the, what is it the, the you know, stuff to help the arteries kind of stay smooth or the walls of the arteries so that yeah. they don't have the sensitivity, uh, uh, you know, the foam cells of the LDL, they can't get stuck to form actual yeah. plaque. Yeah. I think if you'll start, and that's, you can accomplish that with fish oil and vitamin E, um, you know, vitamin C for endothelial function. It's, yeah, it's funny how all these, all that information kind of transcends into general population. And what, what I noticed when I went to the Mr. Olympia last year is that a lot of people that approached me, they're not necessarily bodybuilders. They're more, you know, they take from bodybuilding in a fitness space, but they just want to feel good, look good, you know, have more energy. And I think if, if you start branching out to that demographic, then the success is limitless, as we've seen from Derek. I mean, he branched out quite a bit. And he, now he's one of the biggest, you know, fitness channels. You know, that still provides yes. quality information, not just the lifestyle channels, because I know that's just, you know, people lying about their drug use, obviously. <laughs> yeah. All these 2 million, 4 million subscriber uh, channels that say that they're natural, but they're not. And at least Derek yes. provides some value. It's, uh, yeah, it's an old side tangent. But yeah, I do think, I, I think if you're going that direction with supplement needs and also your own content, you know, on your uh, website or on Instagram, I think the sky's the limit. Yeah, yeah, as long yeah, as you stay definitely... true to yourself and that don't start selling snake oil. Yeah, yeah, well, that's it. Well, that's one thing that I will never, ever do. And that You you yeah. even had a, a piece of content about, like, natural test boosters. That That yeah. is one product that I am adamant I will never create, ever. Really? And that is... <laughs> And that, that is based off the science. Like you could play on someone's emotion and create a, a natural mm-hmm. test booster with all the natural test boosting herbs that we can find online. And I mean, it's not to say that they don't work, but what mm-hmm. I try and get guys to understand is for you to increase your testosterone level, you have to have more either luteinizing hormone in your body or mm-hmm. more luteinizing hormone receptor interactions in your Leydig cell. 
there's no two ways about how you're making more testosterone. How right. how certain natural supplements play into being a test booster is that you make about 5% testosterone from DHEA in your adrenals. You mm. might you might upregulate that semi hydroxysteroid <clears throat> pathway mm. to make more testosterone in your adrenals and then all of a sudden Oh, 3% increase in total testosterone. Well, that just came from your adrenals. And as soon as you stop taking the <laughs> supplement, it's going to drop. And that's, right. you know, uh, I would love for us to have something natural that would endogenously, you know, you can sort of look at maybe natural aromatase inhibiting herbs, lowering mm. serum estradiol levels so that that would in theory raise your total testosterone from lower mm. aromatization but also because that lower aromatization is going to allow the hypothalamus to make more gonadotropin-releasing hormone right. and make more LH as a consequence. But there's nothing, there's no real herb, there's nothing that really interacts with the LH receptor from a, well, a for, herb for the, perspective. For those aggressors. Right. We, we've seen that in, in rats. So we're sort of yeah. taking rat data and of going course, well we're extrapolating, humans, right? You know, yeah. yeah. So, I think I think so, a, a um, test booster in my, many cases why yeah go ahead sorry sorry go ahead no I was going to say when when I done my sort of PCT of of off everything and and obviously my natural test level being hypogonadal at eight I tried everything and I done all blood work and nothing made a dent in that LH value sitting mm. at three point four and my TT staying at. 8.1 nanomole. I tried everything. You can you can name anything and I just researched and I just started taking it during that period. And eventually nothing was proving to be working during that eight month off period. And I eventually was like, you know what? All this is just marketing hype. I put that to bed. I'm not saying that N equals one, but right. I'm fairly certain that, you know, quite a lot of it doesn't really do what it's supposed to be doing other than either interact at the adrenals. Fidoja was one that I didn't try. Now I'm going to put my hand up and say I didn't try that, so I can't argue whether it works or doesn't work from why I've done my own yeah. blood work. But I just, I, like snake oil, I just couldn't play on someone's emotion of take take four taps <laughs> yeah. and, and you're going to see I, this I increase think, in testosterone. I think the main reason why a lot of these testosterone boosters work is because of a micronutrient deficiency. Right? Yeah, a lot of people I mean, get themselves androgen, androgen deficient because they're not taking care of themselves. So you're basically getting a testicular function uh, multivitamin with zinc and selenium and boron and taurine and carnitine and vitamin E, right? All the antioxidants. And, and then, of course, azurecondroot extract, fedosia aggressus and tonkapadali contribute a little bit on top of that. I think if, if people already eat well, and they get all their micronutrients in their low oxidative state, and they, you know, assuming they don't have a varicose cell, right, which impairs the blood flow to yeah. the testicles, which is exactly. more undiagnosed than people realize, because oh, I do a lot absolutely. of these consultations. And that's you know, that's I, what I see with even fertility. I, I see guys yeah. who will, will do fertility protocols with HMG, with TRT, or recombinant FSH, and we get to week 10 to week 12, and we do a sperm analysis, and there's nothing. And they're panicking. And I'm like, yeah. okay, well, let's let's deduce from this. Your FSH is sitting at 1.3 on your blood work. So the HMG mm -hmm. is real because we're detecting it in your serum mm -hmm. as FSH. Right. How about how about we go and get 
a testicular ultrasound, what's that going to show? Well, for one thing, there's probably a varicose seal, so the FSH is going nowhere. It's not going to your testicle. <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. and, and then, then, and then and they then, have to go through the ringer because it's one of the most uncomfortable ultrasounds you have to do unless you get a really hot sonographer, but yeah, good luck. <laughs> it never turns out that, dude, I had a guy. I'd done it twice. I got a guy. I'm like, oh, God, here we go, man. <laughs> yeah, so you have to, yeah, you really have to go with your testicles out, not your butt out, but your testicles. Yeah, it was not fun. Um, but yeah, at least you can diagnose if there's an issue. So I did this one and a half years ago and about a half a year ago when I started this fertility protocol just to have a double checkup to see if I had a varicose cell because you can sink all of this money into fertility medications and it's not cheap, recombinant deficit. No. It's not cheap. Um, you want to make sure that it gets to the receptor. So I, I was able to diagnose that, okay, there's nothing going on internally, right? And no necrotic tissue and no issues with the testicles. So structurally, it all looked good. And then you go in this fertility protocol, and my fertility is, I mean, crazy. My fertility levels are crazy. But you see this with a lot of guys that do a fertility protocol for six months and nothing happens, vertical cell or a hydro yeah. cell, you know, but that's from yeah, impact. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, yeah. and and then you you sort of deduce from them that, like, a, a simple question is: when you do a leg press, do you feel any pressure in your groin? Well, a little bit. I feel this little pull on my right groin when I'm in the bottom of a leg press. You're just like, right, there's our answer. Just go and get the ultrasound because it sounds like you've got a varicose. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how it is. So, right? so it's funny, like like uh, what's his name? Uh, I just had a podcast with him, Stan Efferding. So you went through puberty with a varicose cell. And he was actually prescribed testosterone at a very early age because he wasn't producing adequate testosterone levels. And he still got kids later on because he had a surgery to kind of correct that uh, when he was 30 or, f yeah, quite late because he was already on testosterone replacement therapy and, of course, kicking ass, you know, setting world records. But he still had kids later on after he got that varicose cell uh, um, restored with surgery. And I see this, I, I've had to recommend this several times during consultations. It doesn't matter what you're going to do. Steroids is not the problem. It's a structural yeah. issue, right? Congenital. You, you, blood is not going to the testicles. That's why it's, it doesn't feel right down there. Yeah. And it's it's sort of like you're you're trying to explain to them that it's literally you've got this wall and the hormone is trying to pass through this wall and it's going yeah. nowhere. So it's just bouncing off the wall and going back into circulation. <laughs> so yeah. you know, you 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 you've done everything possible, like you you're taking all your antioxidants, you're taking your your either your FSH or HMG, and the sperm isn't showing up, and it's just sort of like, well maybe the HMG is fake and you're like, well, no, because your blood show your FSH value is in right, good range. So, you know, at, at week 10, I wouldn't expect you to be like azospermic where there's no sperm whatsoever. We probably expect like maybe one or two million if you were expecting some level of fibrosis. But when it's zero right. with that time length of exposure to FSH, it needs to be investigated. Because often like the answer then is, well, would we improve my fertility if we came off and done a fully respirative PCT? And you're just explaining to them, well, now you're just making your own FSH, which is going to bounce off this wall again. So you're going through the pain of a PCT to restore your FSH, which is going nowhere the same as your HMG. So what answer do you think is 
like the next plus, step. Plus, you go through that roller coaster of you know hormones, and then getting androgen deficient for a very long time, and it might stay androgen deficient. You yeah, know, with the varicose cell, and and they probably went on TRT because of the varicose cell because they were androgen deficient to begin with, right? Yeah, uh, and it's it's just something that just just goes undiagnosed with with guys is literally you know yeah. have have you got this physical blockage in place and and it can be like like you said a hydrocell it can be self inflicted so you know mm. guys if you're on leg presses really pay attention to testicular torsion in the bottom of a leg press when you are in that sort of vulnerable aspect of yeah, just, high pressure in that area yeah just don't jerk off so much <laughs> uh, it's, it's, yeah, no, literally like yeah, dude no, i've I, i've seen no. i've seen ultrasounds with a hydrocell on one side and i'm like what what this is the side you masturbate with right and why is the hydrocell on the right side stop jerking off for 90 days goes away uh, yeah. <laughs> no i'm serious dude like, it's all I these know, young guys right all these young guys they're on, on tinder and social media and only fans way too much and i just yeah they they, they slap themselves silly <laughs> it's it's a yeah this is the world notice thank god i'm older I, and i'm married so i, I didn't get in that territory uh, anymore <laughs> um, I, I mean like natural testosterone dopamine issues that like we even touched on the last podcast like that that's yeah, another right. big massive thing that i'm seeing recently like and that's that's big buy-in of like that whole i guess androgen steroid induced hypergonadism of post-cycle libido issues and dopamine issues where you're trying to explain to someone like go and do an organic acid test why well i want to see what the dopamine level of your brain is like well what's that going to tell me well, it's going to tell us why you can't get an erection or can't get sexually stimulated even though all your like total testosterone lhfsh is all perfect and it comes mm -hmm. back and their, their vma level is like less than two and you're like well no wonder you can't get like sexually stimulated normally because your dopamine level is so low yeah. That's another that's another like big fire waiting to happen now in the next couple of years of like so many people with like not not even ADHD type symptoms, but just literally just manic yeah, depressive. Yeah, mm, dopamine issues. Where, yeah. where, and, and then where they're gonna have, you can do a dopamine detox and you can go on 9-MEBC and, and take all the you know stimulus out, but that takes time to recover. Yeah. You know, I mean a lot of guys do benefit from L-tyrosine and, and vitamin B6, B5P supplementation to a certain extent. You can kind of alleviate it, but you never get the same dopaminergic response that you get on dopaminergic compounds like testosterone, thermoplone, et cetera. Um, yeah. Right? You need, you, you need that signaling downstream to kind of take hold. That's why guys are like, yeah, I want the porn stack like I felt on Trimbalone. <laughs> not going to work. And it's... It's it's toxic because you're even trying to, like even in consults, when I'm trying to explain to guys, they come to me with like, I have no libido. And when you sort of work through everything, you arrive at like the, the core message of, oh, my libido isn't the same as when I was on gear. And it's and you're, you're trying to explain to them, you will never have the same libido as when you're on a raging cycle, as when you're on either TRT or fully recovered post-cycle. Like yeah. you can't. I could never compare my my old car, which was an RX eight Mazda RX eight, with like mm. two hundred and fifty brake horsepower, right. two rotor engines, to like the Qashqai one point nine diesel liter Qashqai car, dad car that I drive now. Like you, you could never compare how it feels no. to drive that sports car versus how it feels to 
push on the accelerator of this car and like go nowhere. Whereas as soon as you put your fear foot on the RX-8, <laughs> the car just shot off. So yeah, like you, right. you, you can't have this compar- like comparison syndrome regardless of like even social media comparison syndrome of your mental clarity and mental state on a cycle versus off can never be compared. No, no, I know, but you, you get used to it though. After a couple of months off, like I've been off now for like six, seven months. Right. And I'm finally getting used back to, into my groove because, and even though I'm, I'm not technically off because I'm still using ATG and FSH, right? So my testosterone levels are like 600, 700 nanograms per deciliter, depending on when I measure it. So my levels are good. But the drive and the motivation and, and, you know, the sex drive obviously is is not the same, even on basic TRT. And and I, I mean, when I was on two grams of test, I mean, dude, destroy, destruction left and right in the gym and at home and right. And but also in business because you just stimulate it the whole day. Yeah. It's uh, not sustainable um, it, it's- though. No, and it, you're you're gonna see you, like that comparison of even like trying to chase like when someone comes to me with something like that in a consult, like not not to put any sort of disheartening to it, but you you almost end up at this sort of coaching session of you know your your brain chemistry is never going to be the same, and that's why these things can get highly addictive in the sense of you want to feel mm-hmm. that way all the time, but you know then there's the trade off of your health that you you can't sustain that that dopamine drive long-term if you want your brain to be fully functioning when you're in your forties and fifties. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Because then you get the shakiness and the Parkinson like symptoms, you know, as, as, as you sometimes see with older bodybuilders that are really redlining their stuff, you know, when you see them in interviews on Dave Palumbo's show and you're like, Ooh, yeah, this guy can, did in his younger years because they, they've been, yeah. I mean, it's clear, right, to you also. You just see these guys and it's some neurotransmitter issue going on. They're not 100% present anymore. It's uh, it's a shame to see, you know. The, the neurotoxicity. And I mean, like even someone asked me a question recently on the SN Education Forum about they, they wanted to use some nandrolone, but they were going through some bereavement issues and they wanted to know, could they use nandrolone for some joint care? So basically joint lubrication with the mineral corticoid activation and all that. And basically wanted to know, you know, is it safe with the sort of brain state that I'm in now to use this compound? And like the instant answer is no. You're, you're, you're putting a drug in that is completely neurotoxic, that is going to increase your dopamine, which is going to have potential knock-on effects to OCD behavior. Combine mm-hmm. that with sort of, um, I guess, depression and feeling right. um, a, a sense of, of like, I guess, lullment that putting in this drug is probably going to amplify those negative emotions as opposed to amplifying positive ones. So, mm-hmm. like, the, the, the serious answer to them was no. You And more so, like, uh, MPP maybe with the short half-life, but definitely not Nandrolone Deca, which is like basically was looking for the answer of, oh, can I go and get this prescribed to help my joints? And I was sort of like, well, work through the, the mental instability period with the bereavement and then maybe look to put in the compound as opposed to exactly, yeah, knowing yeah, right. that compound's going to really make things a hell of a lot worse. And, you know, that probably applies to anyone listening here that you, you really need to be in the right frame of mind when you're putting some of these compounds in because they are going to shape how you think and feel 
Yeah, and then the weird thing is you don't even realize that your thought patterns are altered until you come off cycle. And with Trimbalone, that's even the most noticeable. Like two weeks later, you like, you realize, like, was I really such a dickhead? And then everybody around <laughs> you kind of confirms it for you. So, yeah, you were insufferable. You know, that's why I haven't touched it in eight years. Um, and then, But even on the regular DHT derivatives, you're a little bit more irritable, a little bit more snappy, a little bit, you know, quicker and more definitive in your decision-making process. And sometimes it's okay to kind of ease back. And, uh, you know, just stick with TRT or even come off cycle to kind of humble yourself. Because that's what I realized the last six months, you know, that your, your entire thought pattern and how you look at life changes. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's quite weird. Even though I do prefer myself on TRT, I'll be honest. Uh, now I'm a little bit too mellow. My wife has the upper hand too often. Uh, so I, I can't <laughs> wait to, to go back on TRT. And I'm like, yeah, no, no, well, that's not happening anymore, baby. <laughs> I mean, I mean, 600 is still a good level. I mean, mine, it's mine okay, yeah. Sitting, yeah. I, I strictly keep mine between 22 to 26 is sort of where I hover is on bloods. So right, I'm, okay. I'm really, you know, I'm happy to keep it there. And like I say to guys, when, when you're sort of moving from 8 to 24, you're always going to feel different to how it was when you were ever off anyway, because you, you're technically in this sort of super physiological range anyway. Yeah, for your for endogenous production, right? And of course, yeah. the longer you stay yeah. there, the more normal it feels. But, you know, at one point, you might have to come off for whatever reason. And then you go back to yeah. what you produce endogenously or worse, even lower. And, and then, yeah, that's a hard reality check. So I've I've been uh, doing a lot of contemplation in the last six months, seven months. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, all ro all roads lead to going back on TRT, albeit modest. Uh, TRT. Plus. I mean, we yeah. we we touched on it like in the the first podcast. Mine was again my triglycerides when I was sitting at eight nanomole. I seen metabolic dysfunction from being mm -hmm. at a lower level when my my metabolism over the period of six years had become used to being manipulated to that level. So you, right. you have to sort of view again that if you commit to something like this, your, your commitment is there for, for good that mm -hmm. when you come off and you move back again, you have that risk of metabolic dysfunction because your, your, your pancreatic androgen receptors, your liver androgen receptors, your intestinal ones that we talked about earlier, they're all reliant on this new set level of testosterone versus your hypogonadal mm. level that you're not achieving that activation. So your metabolism will suffer. And so unless you want to yeah. eat sawdust <laughs> to, to try and no, make right, that right. genomic. Right. So, so the, I mean, we can take myself as an example. Right? I was uh, very regimented with my diet uh, for, let's say, the first five months after coming off cycle. And I actually got leaner. I got leaner and then I went on holiday and I started eating a little bit more freely, which is literally like a 500 calorie increase. So I went from two, five to 3000, which is nothing for a guy my size, 3000 calories per day, same food, just more of it. And I'm fat. Your, you know, your, your metabolic processes completely change. Your insulin sensitivity, yeah. your triglyceride disposal completely changes. Yeah, and, yeah. Again, and even on my blood work, my like my hemoglobin A1C didn't change, my triglycerides didn't change, but you know something with with the turnover of nutrients, you no, know, whether that's a thyroid or stuff, it, yeah, you just slowly start getting fatter and fatter and fatter. And you're like, man, what the hell's going on? 
you know it's, it's surprising to see and then i took five weeks off and then it really everything fell apart of course so now i have a little bit of a goal to get back in shape but yeah it's it's i mean getting in shape now look at somebody i'll read your bedroom story now in a few minutes you want to say hello to steve hey buddy what's up how are you good 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 you good yeah, I have an Iron Man punch. You can punch. I'll show you now. You have an Iron Man? Okay, show it yes, to me, please. This is I love kids. Right. No. Callum. <laughs> he wants to show Steve his... <laughs> You're showing him your... You've got time. Oh, my God. Why, why didn't I have that when I was younger? Oh, you got the gloves too. Okay, no snapping. Please, no snapping. <laughs> right, tell him, tell him it's time for bed. Ask, ask him if he's Team Iron Man or Team Thanos. <laughs> tell him. Here, look. It's good. There you go. There you go. I have a plug there. This is what you were at in the kitchen, like I said to you. This is great. This is okay. So, are you guys Team Iron Man, Team Iron Man, or Team Thanos? Iron Man, because I am Batman. Batman. Good, good. Come on, I didn't know you had some. Right, right, leave them here. Uh -huh. Man, I need these toys myself. Right. Come on, bring them upstairs. Yes, I'll come up to him in a minute. I'll, I'll let him go in five minutes. we got to wrap up. We'll wrap up the show and then and they can play uh play with the toys it's so amazing that all these these kids have the most amazing toys i remember when i had toys that were not as cool as yours as theirs <laughs> the two of them, they got they got them earlier and the two one one has iron man and one is thanos so you see in charity the two-year-old <laughs> they're all battling it out and reenacting the, the movies yeah yeah, yeah. So it's, that's, it, good. It, that's that's when you're when you're uh, an adult with two boys, you uh, can relive toys through them as the well. The childhood, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember my mom. My mom told me like years ago that I should keep all my toys. So I did. They're all back in Holland. And the next time I go, I'll pick them up, so I can slowly feed them to my kids, and to save myself on, on uh, a child kids. So I have like all these ancient toys from Star Wars, like first generation, you know, <sighs> toys. They, you what probably, is that? You probably grew up. Oh, in of the course, 90s. yes, yeah. It's the White Ranger. Sword. It's a Mumra Mumra <laughs> scepter, right? Oh, it's, oh, it's a, a White Power Ranger, or not? White Power Ranger, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a Mumra scepter from. I, um, that that was that was in my parents' house, so it yeah, still keep works. It. Oh, the, the batteries must have went. Down. Oh no, yeah, there they, we go. They played with it a lot. <laughs> Your kids are probably yeah, like, so who, who, the, who is the White Power Ranger? And then you got to show them. And then you can I've watch all those old cartoons. 
showed them on Netflix and now they're obsessed with Power Rangers. Oh, wow. There's actually a new, uh, there was recently a new uh, episode coming out from Power Rangers where like three or four of the actors. Yeah, three or four of the actors. Very, very nostalgic. But when you're, when you're, when you're like me and you've got the two boys, you live through them with toys and whatever else. So, of course, <laughs> it's, That's it's a warning for, for whenever you have kids. <laughs> That's funny. I'm not going to have you uh, keep you from your kids any longer. This was great, man. Thanks so much for all of your insights. I'm sure people are going to love this. Let's let's get to 50,000 views on this podcast. Yeah. All right, guys, make it, it make it happen, guys. All right, and I'll um, I'll talk to you again very soon. Let's let's not wait a year. We always have a lot to report. No. No, absolutely. So, um, it's always a pleasure. We'll do this again soon. Have a good day, buddy. Take care. Cheers, Steve. Bye.